Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. folks. We told you we had living, breathing monstrosities. You laughed at them, shuddered at them, and yet, but for the accident of birth, you might be even as they are. They did not ask to be brought into the world, but into the world they came. Their code is a law unto themselves. Offend one, and you offend them all. Yesteryear. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo takes you to the sideshow, that everlasting curio of the arts that asks you, the audience, how judgmental can you be, and who is the real monster? Many lessons can be learned courtesy of Mr. Todd Browning, but the most important one will always be offend one and you offend them all as we unveil 1932's Freaks. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. We'll make her one of us, a loving cup, a loving cup. We accept a one of us, we accept a one of us. Oh, my God. 
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Coming off the success, coming off of the success of Dracula for Universal, Todd Browning was lured back to his silent film home of MGM to create the ultimate horror film for Irving Thalberg. What began as a f- way to further explore his fascination with the outsider and to homage his time working in the circus ended up becoming one of cinema's most controversial entries that still carries baggage to this day. Is it compassionate or exploitive? Is it horror or not? Is it a masterpiece? or something best forgotten by time. One thing is for certain, it's a film that once you've seen it, you will never forget it. Now the ballyhoo has the task of going through the film at that did un- <laughs> God. Now go- now the ballyhoo has the task of going through the film that undid Browning, but we cannot do it alone. With us today is a podcaster whose wonderful tones can be heard on, heard on the semi-regular horror podcast Rated H and on the Golden Age Hollywood Chatter Show All the Best Lines. Please welcome to the show Bernard or Smokey. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Zach. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome, Smokey. Welcome to the show. Um, this has been a long time in the making. I knew that the moment I started Ballyhoo, you would be coming on board with this because um at the time of shamley's ending um adam roach uh your co-host on all the best lines never um, heard of him yeah yeah. (laughs) don't know who you're talking about who who is he He, he's uh he's he's some kind of chef right some kind of chef makes some nice uh well he says that (laughs) (laughs) but no he um on his show attaboy clarence he mentioned the shamley silhouette along with a slew of other shows that i was Mm. like i've got to check these out and rated h was one of the first ones because i am a horror fan and as soon as i started listening going like i love it it's great (laughs) they're going through catalog titles they're They've got little games that they play with the alphabet. I fucking love this show. Um, so, uh, so naturally, it was it was no secret that I was going to get you on here. And then when you started doing all the best lines, my first worry was like, oh god, am I going to be curbing their show? <laughs> 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 but having listened to ours, uh, our different shows side by side, I'm like, no, nah, I'm doing something different. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, you are. But, well, that's that's very sweet of you. Thank you. Yeah. So, but really quickly, um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, uh, all the best lines because you, hmm. you you're part of the secret history of Hollywood Film Club, and Adam has you on the show, and he basically is exposing you primarily to films that you haven't seen before for the most part. Um, right. And um, how how has it been, uh, kind of delving into Golden Age Hollywood that you haven't seen before under that kind of circumstance? I mean, it's been wonderful. I mean, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, the, the film club is just is a wonderful group experience. You know, we we all have our little cliques and our in jokes, but it's mm-hmm. all it's all encompassing. To you know, everyone's welcome to to join in. But it but it's been great. I mean, I I've always had an interest in the golden age uh, of of cinema. You know, I, I but it was always I'd seen. The heavy hitters, you know, I'd seen mm. Casablanca, I'd seen Gone with the Wind, and it, but then it was in Double Indemnity, whatever you want to say, but yeah, it exactly. was, yeah, and uh, whereas obviously my bread and butter, as you mentioned, is horror, I did want to branch out because there was nothing that I'd seen that I thoroughly disliked. Um, unless it's a musical, but that's another thing. Um, <laughs> well, there's another there's another source of hatred in your heart that I <laughs> I can't. I, but I'll no no <laughs> no no let's let's not go there. Um, oh, oh, don't worry, I'm going to say her name. <laughs> <laughs> you keep it in, Zachary. How did how did how did he how did he silence me through the computer? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you'll find out, Sonny Jim. Right now. <laughs> No, but it's 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 been lovely. I mean, as I say, everyone everyone there is great. Um, 
It's funny, actually, you mentioned that, obviously, uh, right, off the, right off the top there, uh, mentioning uh, Freaks and uh, Todd Browning. But, you know, you, you say this this did for him, but, you know, bearing in mind, 36, uh, the, the uber masterpiece of the Devil Doll was uh, that came out. Yes. And, you know, and uh, Adam and I covered that on all, all the best lines, which is now one of my favorite films, which is just because it's just forgive me but it's fucking awesome it is because it's it's a film that you i adam wasn't wrong the way he sold it he's like it's Mm. insane but it's Mm -hmm. somehow emotional and touching like yeah well he's a big girl anyway so he likes to cry (laughs) at the end of films so it's it's fine don't don't always listen to it don't always listen to you'll have to count me in on his camp because i can cry at the uh, remote cry at the most simple shit so Uh, do you know what so could i but i i draw the line at devil doll but (laughs) But I no, didn't cry in Devil Doll, but I was just no. like, "Oh my god, is this trying to tug at my heartstrings?" Because it's almost succeeding. It was. <laughs> it, was tra- it was trying. You're right. It was very trying. But uh, no, but it, it, it's wonderful. I mean, there's all. This is why I love it, though, um, it, because there's all these, there's all these gems that a lot of people won't have won't have heard of. Obviously, we're going to touch on again some of the the bigger hitters, uh, we, you know, which we will like. As you mentioned, uh, uh, we've done Stagecoach and, and whatnot, and so that that's quite high up there. Mm-hmm. But um, but then but then things like we've done like like the Thin Man. I don't know if everyone will know that. And then of course we did Obsession as well, which is which is really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then of course we we've literally just at time of recording this week we've just recorded about His Girl Friday. Right. So our our first step into Cary Grant territory. Mm-hmm. Which you um, did with the uh, host of Band Biographies, which is a new show that I've been digging into because I am very right. music. I yeah. was never a music fan growing up. I was fan of music if it was related to film. So like right. listening to the uh, the one on the slits, I was like, oh, yeah. wow, this is uh, this is a story I had no idea existed. So yeah, looking that's, forward to that's- his. Uh, oh, absolutely! Yeah, that, that that's our friend Tom, Tom, uh, Tom Austin Morgan from the Anywhere But Here podcaster and Band Biographies, and he's he's been. A, we've all been friends, all of us, all of the, uh, us podcasters. Me and my co-host Ben on Rated H, and then Adam, and then uh, Tom on there, and various others. Uh, we've all been friends and podcasting podcasting friends for a, almost a decade now, and um, and it's just wonderful. We do do this cross pollination thing of joining each other's shows. Mm-hmm. And we uh, and again we've done it for years and it, it's great fun, and yeah. uh, the same with uh, your previous guest Kev as well. You know he's part of that group as well. You know I've known Kev for years as well, and he's I, he's a lovely bloke too. I, I love Kev. We, let's he's let's awesome. let's take a moment to acknowledge Kev because mm. God bless him sitting down for four hours to talk about the haunting, yeah. and like and I reveled in every minute of it. He 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 came in a slew of me recording a bunch of uh, pre-recorded episodes, <laughs> yeah. and I was weak from exhaustion, but mm. that. Conversation like gave me an extra dose of energy that I needed that week. What so. <laughs> one of my favorite podcasting moments of this year, or possibly several years, was was on that episode you did with him uh, uh, with the haunting. Mm-hmm. And I can't, I for the life of me, I can't remember what you asked, but you asked him a question, and obviously Kevin had a couple to drink by that point, and it for about thirty seconds of that recording, he's just going. Uh... <laughs> Because he couldn't remember the word. <laughs> I was just howling. I was like, yeah, that's my mate right there. <laughs> he, he, uh, he is responsible for uh, uh, one of my favorite lead-ins to, a, to, a, to an imitation. Because I like doing the bad imitations regardless of like what no. others think of them. And um, I don't believe he, you. I don't believe when his uh, yeah, no, oh, oh, trust me, Smokey. I love doing the bad <laughs> imitations. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thankfully, there's none. There's not going to be any today, really. But 
but it's probably uh, best to avoid those ones. Yeah, he <laughs> talked about um, he talked about his exposure to Golden Age Hollywood, and mm. he's like, yeah, my mom tried to get me into What's a Wonderful Life, and I just wasn't having it, and I just was able to lay into Jimmy Stewart cursing him out. So, oh, okay. <laughs> it's, yeah, and the problem was is that the audio peaks when I did it that loud, <laughs> so I had to keep adjusting it to be like, ah, oh, it's still I blew out the mic here. Um, oh. but yeah, so so it's good that you have started exploring other territories within mm. golden age Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. But obviously, uh, so that kind of already answers the question. Like, how did you get into golden age Hollywood? Although like, I would want to ask specifically from the horror point of view, like what's your first exposure to horror of the golden age realm? Uh, I mean, it's, it's gotta be the universal monsters. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's pretty, that's, that's a way uh, a lot of horror fans get into to, to the sort of the golden age um, horror movies, I think. But I mean, but I I don't know if you can blame this on being English, but obviously I saw the Hammer Studio movies before that mm-hmm. um, of of you know of Dracula and the Mummy and whatnot, anything with Christopher Lee in. Really. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you mean Christopher Lee of Toxic Fog? <laughs> <laughs> that's r- that's right. Yes, the lead singer of Toxic Fog. Yeah, <laughs> bless him. He's an absolute gent. Yeah, but um, yeah, but he, of course it was just it was just that thing of Christopher Lee and and Peter Cushing, and it was just it was just wonderful stuff, uh, especially as a as a child watching them because they're not scary, but they're they're impactful, if you will. And they're out there too, like they oh, they definitely like kick you in the kick you in the shins with excitement, like very much so. And the blood, like the blood of a Hammer horror film, is like extremely red and extremely vibrant and out there. Yes. Yes, um, and 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 you know, not to go too too into it, but of course, you know, there's there's all the the busty brunettes and things like that, and there's sort of, and you know, as a as a young growing boy with hormones flying around, you sort of go, oh, hello, you know, well, who, who's I, well, this? I, well, I say, breasts exist. How exciting! <laughs> they, do, they do. Do you know what? So, do you know what? Breasts do exist, and they're absolutely <laughs> wonderful. And so, and so Agreed. when you so when you're growing up, it's sort of like, oh yeah, there they are. It's you know, yeah. it's it's brilliant. But uh, yeah, no, Golden Age horror. Yeah, it was it was the Universal, it was mm-hmm. Universal films. But I, I've got a, I've got an odd thing which I'm actually I've I've just started doing with uh, with Val Luton movies as well, which is Universal uh, uh, monster movies, uh, Hitchcock and now Val Luton. Is I ration them. I don't watch them all. Mm-hmm. Is I I watch maybe one or two a year because I don't want to run out. Um, I still, mm. I know it's, a, I know it's a little odd because if you, if you're a massive fan of, of someone, and I'm a huge Hitchcock fan, it, it's like it, you want to it, it ingest all his output as quickly as possible. But that's not the way I look at it. Is like I, I still haven't seen all of Hitchcock, and I've been watching Hitchcock for over twenty years, and I still haven't mm-hmm. watched them all because I don't want to run out. Yeah, you know? that was how eventually. I. That was I was still missing a few by the time I did Shamley. Um, mm. and. Uh, like a lot of them were ones that I hadn't gone back to in years. So my yeah. impression of them changed dramatically. The only exception being Marnie because Marnie mm. always kind of rubbed me the wrong way, no matter how many times I, how many times I could have gotcha. watched it, but it's a tough watch. It's a tough watch. Now, like when we did the episode on it, like we were able to appreciate what it is doing, mm. but I'm just like, I don't think that that's not what I'm going to sit back to uh, at the end of the day. Like I'm going to go back sure. to psycho first and foremost, like that's fair enough. It's the standard answer for your favorite Hitchcock, but I'm just like, yeah, but it just had such an impact on me as a youngster that it's it's hard to take away that feeling that I felt when I first saw it. If I yeah, had to pick a non-psycho one, I'd have to say it's probably right now it's Shadow of a Doubt. Oh, wow. Shadow of a That's Doubt cool is just it's a precursor to Psycho in a lot of ways, but it's also uh, it's very 
it feels like there's a lot of warmth in the making of that film that is a very cold film about mm. like very terrible people and for whatever sure. reason it's it's a comfort food movie and this oh, is this is a movie about you know a killer uncle, but somehow somehow there's a like uncle. a I, I can sit back in the town of Santa Rosa and yeah. just watch things unfold. Um, but so yeah, so the Universal Monsters gets mm. you started. Yes, um, now the film we're about to talk about today, Freaks, is not yeah. a Universal horror film, but no. it has been lumped in the conversation when it comes to Universal horror films, especially. Yeah given the fact that Todd Browning is involved and mm-hmm. Thalberg to an extent, because Thalberg and Browning were both people who worked within Universal in the earliest of the examples of a horror film. So like Phantom of the Opera being the yep. primary example of it in terms of uh, what we consider traditional horror films. And obviously Lon Chaney Sr.'s Phantom is a image of Universal monsters that still carries over, even though Universal doesn't, uh, put, can't put it in their box sets with all the other monsters. So yeah. the Phantom of the Opera you get, I love Claude Rains, but the Phantom of the Opera that you get in those box sets is not good. Uh. Yeah, yeah. We we reviewed Phantom of the Opera um, with Kev, in fact, uh, with Kevin Alley from Film Guff. Mm-hmm. We did that on Rated H, and uh, my co-host Ben uh, nailed that film pretty perfectly when there's uh, when he said there's too much opera, not enough Phantom. Yep. Exactly, and and that's that's bang on for that film. Really, yeah, it's a yeah. it's a it's that's a property that I feel like you need to have the horror in it. And I haven't gone back to Joel Schumacher's uh, adaptation of the musical in a while, but I'm not a big Andrew Lloyd Webber fan, so I don't have reasons yeah. to go back to it. <laughs> no, I, I I've never seen it. I can't I can't do it. I just it's, I, yeah. it's he Gerard Butler's fine, and everybody's fine is in he? it. It's just that interpretation <laughs> of the story is not what yeah. I'm looking for out of the Phantom. Yeah. I keep telling people like, no, like I know it seems backward thinking but hear me out you need the phantom to be creepy and you need that story to be creepy like that's the only way it works cinematically um so anyway the discussion of freaks Mm. i think is a is loaded from several different angles we're not going to be able to talk about every angle today um because there are uh, I think a lot of what our show is dedicated to is discussing like how the film carries over and what lessons does it bring over into the present. Mm-hmm. Um, but the there's a lot of angles to freaks, not just from production and story, but also cast. Um, there's a lot of sideshow performers in this film that have unique stories in and of themselves, and we won't be able to get to each and every single one of them. But um, one thing that can be said about freaks, regardless of... Uh, the your own personal interpretation of it is is that it's interesting to see these sideshow performers all gathered in one setting. Oh, um, yeah. it, a lot of what has been described about Freaks is that it's like it's big. The 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 ensemble in Freaks is bigger than most actual sideshows would be stacked with um, on the road. Um, and sideshows are a phenomenon in in popular culture and um, art, if you uh, like, depending on how you want to identify it, uh, that still exist, but they exist under different terms today. Um, And when we talk about freaks at the time that this was going on, one of the elements of it is is that it can be seen as exploitative. Um, Now, I think that as we go along in the discussion, we're going to find out that however complicated the legacy of Freaks is, 
there is a positivity that comes out of it. Um, and your interpretation of that positivity has to do with what you're able to ingest. And I, so I'm giving the disclaimer as I usually do with films of a controversial nature or with content of a controversial nature is, is that you should only watch freaks if your comfort level allows you to. And if this episode provides like the context needed to go into the film and experience it then I'm, I'm glad we did that but if but if it compels you to not watch the movie it's totally understandable because this movie's not for everybody um it is a film that it's a it's a film that i think horror fans like yourself and i are drawn to whether we're deep in the trenches of horror like you or mm-hmm. very appreciative of horror like me because i don't even go into the deep trenches of uh of, of horror the way other horror fans do but i am i'm receptive to pretty much all of it um sure. uh and so when it comes to freaks um i think it's important to talk about how we first came upon it mm. so smoky how did you discover freaks freaks was uh you've got to remember that this was banned for a very long time in this country mm-hmm. um i may be I don't know, maybe not in this country, but I may be the only person who saw the remake before I saw the Todd Browning version. No, the um, Freak Show one. The uh, Freak Show, yeah, 2007, I think yeah, it was. By the, by yeah, by the Asylum, which I saw as well. That's we right. can talk about it, yeah. Yeah, um, that was that was not a good film. And nope. so, <laughs> no. And so, it, um, I mean, the ending, oh God, we'll get to it. But the, en- the ending of the remake is, is a travesty, but we'll, we'll mm-hmm. get there. But, um, yeah. uh, but so... I knew it was a remake and I knew that I wanted to see the original, but it was hard to come by uh, over here. Um, and then the fir- But the first time I saw it, I was working uh, for a place that sold DVDs and Blu-rays when the DVD release got a, got a kind of new packaged release. It's mm-hmm. got to be around about the same time, maybe 2010-ish. And... Um, and I and I watched it on my lunch break at work. <laughs> Sat and, and of course, you know, various people coming through the staff room and seeing and going, "What are you watching?" And it was like, and my very honest response at the time was, "Do you know what? I don't know. I don't know what I'm watching." <laughs> but it's uh, it's very interesting you say that though about the the real the sort of the myriad of ways you can view this film because it is. It's it's a hard watch. Let's let's mm-hmm. not beat around the bush. It's a really tricky view. Yeah. Um, um, well, I mean, I I would say that for a film that is just over an hour long, it's the most difficult hour of viewing I've possibly ever seen. Yeah. Um, it's it's not comfortable in any way. But do, as as you said, do you put those biases aside because you are watching a piece of art? You are watching a film, mm-hmm. and um, do you? you've really got to tread lightly with this film in the, <laughs> yeah. you, you know what I mean? Because you, 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 you could describe this in a thousand different ways and 999 of them could possibly be offensive. Right. So do you view it as an audience member of a sideshow or do you view it as a film lover? It's really tricky. Right. Mm-hmm. And but I think that's why it's so compelling. And also for the fact is that it's it's a mess of a film because yeah. it, it jars in so many places. And there's but, reasons for that, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I'm sure we'll get to those as well. But it's the biggest mess that you can't take your eyes off of. Yeah. And that is to the film's credit. Mm-hmm. Um I, I think it's I think it's a real pity that that 
Todd Browning was so lambasted for it and and really sort of castigated and you know driven from Hollywood basically because of this film. However, saying that, you can also look at it from the other side and say he was way ahead of his time. This should not be a 30s movie. Yeah. But on the other hand, see this is it. There's so many flip sides. On the other hand, could it have been made any other time? And I possibly I don't think it could have done. No, I, I, I'm I'm inclined to agree. And a lot of the discussion we will have is because um, the remake, the remake freak show by the asylum is a property that answers a answers a question very easily. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, this is a film that um, to my mind, if you're if you were trying to remake it now, mm-hmm. a lot of things change and a lot of specific characters that are contained within this film don't reappear. Yeah. Um, uh, a bit of a spoiler for the very end of the show. Uh, uh, American Horror Story uh, did a version of Freaks within its series Freak Show, which was, I believe, season four or five, right, yeah. um, which I watched and I do like it. Um, but I think it trends more towards homaging Nightmare Alley than it does okay. freaks. Yeah. Um, and it specifically comes with Jessica Lang and the way she's playing the Marlena Dietrich character. Um, yeah. But um, the, the thing with freaks that I guess I should tell my origin story with it. So sure, my, in, my introduction to freaks comes by way of comedy um, growing up in, uh, in high school, I was a fan of Kevin Smith. Um, and I, hey. and I'm still an appreciator. I mean, I'm still an appreciator of Kevin Smith to this day. I still maintain yeah. He's the one filmmaker that still wears his heart on his sleeve, which can't be said for every other filmmaker. Yeah. Um, now, whether or not my reception to his material uh, complements that view is is on a case-by-case basis these days. But um, he did an animated version of Clerks. And on the animated version of Clerks, there is a joke uh, in the what is now the final episode of the show um, where two of the microcephalic uh, uh, sideshow performers – uh, come into the quick stop and they go like, do you guys sell gum? Like it, and they just go to buy gum and they creep Dante and Randall out and do the one of us, one of us. <laughs> <laughs> and it threw me off as a young person. Cause I was just like, what is this referencing? Mm. You dig enough digging in the early internet. You find out about freaks by way of that, or you find out a way. Another way people have found out about it is actually through the Ramones with the song pinhead. Um, oh, and, um, which they saw at a performance, uh, they saw a performance of freaks, uh, when their show was canceled. So they, the Ramones all go to a movie theater to watch freaks and they go like, well, I say this is bloody cool. Let's make a song out of it. <laughs> and that's how the, and that's how the Ramones made pinhead, uh, this very short story. Wow. Um, but, um, the, uh, uh, the, when I finally found the film, Warner brother, unlike you, unlike you in the UK, and it really hadn't been banned here. Right. Um, it was just more withdrawn from circulation, but uh, Warner Brothers remastered it and put out what I still think is one of the greatest DVDs that's ever been released, given that it's only one disc, oh, because wow. the DVD contains the un the, the restored uncut version, yeah, um, and it contains an hour long documentary that is like actually by if we're going into specifics, the documentary is longer than the movie itself right. because they're talking about all the individual performers or at least the ones that they have record of. Gotcha. Um, and uh, there's also a commentary by David J. Skull, who is one of the preeminent authors on horror history. Um, and there's also a whole section on the alternate endings discussing 
the different endings and where the film ended up ending mm-hmm. um, in general release. And it also has um, the, um, uh, the, 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 the audacity to have um, the prologue, the mess special prologue at the beginning, which mm. in, a, in many ways I find the prologue to the movie more offensive than the movie itself. Yeah, um, I because, agree. Because if you read the um, uh, prologue, which um, I, I might do um, by the end of the episode because I have it screenshotted, or at least I'll post the screenshots for people. But uh, the amongst things, it does have like a negative African American stereotype uh, drawing in it um, <laughs> yeah. on, on to off to the side. But if you read the scroll, it is very. Very much like by the end of it, it's saying like, well, science is going to take care of these abnormalities. So these are, these are a lost people. And it's like, oh, yeah. Jesus Christ. It's, yeah. it's one of those things where you watch it now in the 21st century and go like, I, I can we just not, I can watch the movie without this prologue. That's fine. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll be perfectly um, honest with you, mate. That the, the problem, the, the, the main problem with that prologue is it's, fucking long <laughs> it doesn't well yeah stop. it is also two minutes and 30 seconds and it's just like i don't think any of the audience gave a shit <laughs> like, no. you could have started that film without it no problem yeah we, there's a there's a prologue for public enemy the public enemy or as it's oh, known yeah. in your country enemies of the public <laughs> <laughs> is, which is which is just like just call it the public enemy yeah, this, this, that's this is not needed uh, but there's a prologue <laughs> for that that takes like about i want to say 30 seconds and like mm. unlike this prologue i think it's more uh level-headed <laughs> like yeah because, but they're not yeah. having to describe the movie freaks. They're having to describe the no. public enemy and go like, yeah. "Look, you shouldn't. Ju- you should. You should just not do crime. How about that?" <laughs> yeah, that's a good start. Yeah, <laughs> but no. But you're right. The, but the language used in this prologue is, mm-hmm. as you say, it's really, and I mean, severely offensive. Yeah. In, in the fact that I, I mean, I, I was I was half thinking that we would sort of maybe go through it, and I'm thinking I don't want to because yeah. because it's really some of some of the words used. Uh, you, I don't know, man. You just you could not get away with using them nowadays because it's just don't do it. it just just don't. Is that all I'm saying? Here, here, I'm gonna, I am going to read the ending of it, like the last okay. two paragraphs of it. Okay. Uh, Never again will such a story be filmed, as modern science and technology is rapidly el- eliminating such blunders of nature from the world. With humility for the many injustices done to such people, they have no power to control their lot. We present the most startling horror story of the abnormal and the unwanted. So, like, uh, even just in the last half, where they're trying to like somehow go, like, no, we we we're not we're we're not making fun of them. It's like, but you kind of are because you're calling them nature's blunders. Like, this is so friggin' strange like why would you do this and it's it just it it offends you to this day so thankfully it's an option on the dvd it's not Mm. embedded into the film it's kind of like the prologue to the public enemy where it's just like yeah you don't need to have this prologue but it's a nice curio it's an artifact of a time when people were so worried about content that would offend that they would be like well we've got to put this intro up at front now Obviously, then the question is, well, and then why are you doing an entire podcast dedicated to that context, Zach? And it's like, well, no, we're well, we're not doing this. <laughs> well, no, no, that's true. But also, but also, these things need to be discussed, though, don't they? Yeah, I mean, exactly. You, you can't just leave them as a relic. You can't just leave them as a as a as a time capsule. Mm-hmm. These things these things do need to be talked about. Um, I will say, I did a little bit of digging on this, and I went on uh, the Internet Archive. 
um, which is very handy for for golden age stuff that isn't readily available. And uh, and uh, and and I've got to say, the, the amount of copies of this on there is staggering. There's lots. Yeah, I don't know how they're getting away with that. There's a couple Me, of neither. golden age Hollywood films that have placement on the internet archive where mm. it's questionable but also the studio itself is not caring about whether or not it's up there so like buck benny rides again which is a jack benny film is on mm-hmm. there technically okay. it's still owned by universal because it bought the paramount catalog i don't think universal gives two shits about the movie at this point i i shouldn't um, think so no no but, uh, but, uh, but what freaks. i was gonna say, just quickly was that um was it yeah the, the amount of copies that are on there but every single one of them is a different length Mm-hmm. There, there is not one set time. Yeah, and so, so the copy that I watched on there was that I just found the longest one I could, basically, yeah. because I, if it had more content, I wanted to see it. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think the majority of the copies on there don't have the prologue. So I was, mm-hmm. I'm glad that I picked the right one. <laughs> yeah, well, you've got you've got the prologue one, and you'd also have, as we'll talk about with the endings of this film. Mm. It was a very difficult film to end in a film that also had to be torn to ribbons when it was made. Um, And in order to get into that, we should talk about Todd Browning because Mm. there are no real stars in this movie that today's listening audience would know. Um, Like nobody really knows who uh, Wallace Ford is Um, or they don't really know – who Olga Baklanova is. Uh, although Baklanova has a history with the silent film era, and we'll talk about her. Yeah. But Browning is the star of this movie. Browning is the star because he is, he is, he is brought in, he brings up freaks in a world where he is coming off of the success of Dracula. He begins um, in, he's born in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, and he left his family at the age of 16 to join the circus. Um, uh, he came, and he came from a well-to-do family, so he's taking a huge risk by going it. He changes his name from Charles to Todd, um, and he traveled with sideshows, carnivals, and circuses. His jobs on it included working as the talker, the outside talker for the wild man of Borneo, uh, performing a live burial act, um, and he was described in that act as the living corpse. And he was also a clown for Ringling brothers. Um, he did also work in vaudeville as an actor, a magician and a blackface comedian. (laughs) Uh, and, um, I'm not going to say the name of the act because I just don't want to say that out loud right now, but it, trust me, it's not good. Um, and he's also, um, but he starts working in film through DW Griffith Griffith, um, thankfully he does not start off, uh, it seems with, uh, the birth of a nation. Uh, he actually, uh, one of the ones that he is included in as an, he's an extra in the movie intolerance, um, which is DW Griffith's response to the birth of a nation. That is not changing my mind on DW Griffith. So <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Very, very big movie. Very good movie, but no, not no. you. You made the one movie. I can't do it. <laughs> no, I get it. <laughs> I, I, I found I found other people in history that made the first feature length film, and I will take theirs as an answer. Again, shout out to Mark Cousins, the the maker of the longest cinema documentary ever made. <laughs> um, but he, um, and actually, he actually almost lost his life because he was he crashed his car in 1915 full speed into another vehicle mm. uh and uh but he survived 
and his debut feature film uh it, in uh directing um was the lucky transfer um and from there he works through the silent era uh and he works primarily with Lon Chaney Sr. Um, Thalberg at MGM paired Lon Chaney with uh, with Todd Browning for The Wicked Darling, um, which is a melodrama. But the thing about Lon Chaney's melodramas is that they're actually uh, uh, horror movie origin points um, yeah. because Lon Chaney was known for his makeup and his extensive use of creating characters of the macabre. And a lot of the big ones that he did uh, where some of the makeup is the most intense have to do with Browning, whether it's the unknown or um, uh, 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 sorry, London after midnight and uh, London after midnight is a movie that we will never see because it's lost. Um, there's a photo recreation available from Turner classic movies, but uh, it's um, you know, it's, it's not the same thing, you know, it's, no. it's a, it's a so, nice, I was just going to say, supposedly one of the scariest movies ever made, and yet we'll never get to see it as well. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's it's a shame because the makeup is utilized in pop culture, and we know it, and mm. it looks amazing. Um, he does because he, he's a vampire, but it's Lon Chaney is a vampire. If he was also like a werewolf, because mm. he's got like these razor sharp teeth, and his eyes are sunken in. Like, yeah, uh, it's it's weird how that film has kind of gone into folklore, isn't it? I mean, I. I I can only imagine it's not as good as we wish it is because, yeah. because, because what is, you know? No, <laughs> like, well, we, 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 we would, we would be putting too much expectation on it. I mean, like I if you're so. looking for his silent films that do exist, the unknown is an amazing film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the unholy three, the version that Browning directed, the silent version of the unholy three is a, is a fun film. It's not the one that uh, we would talk about the most because there is a remake of the unholy three, which is the only film Lon Chaney senior ever spoken because after that role, he passed away from cancer. Um, And something about freaks going in is that initially the property of freaks, which is based on a short story by Todd Robbins uh, called Spurs, uh, was acquired as a property for Lon Chaney. A lot of these properties were acquired for Lon Chaney. Dracula was acquired by Carl Emley Jr. in an attempt to get Lon Chaney over there because it would be Lon Chaney or it can't be done. Uh, and um, obviously, we know how that fucking turned out. Uh, <laughs> hey, there we go. <laughs> who, who says I? Who said I killed Lon Chaney in order to get the role? You're, 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 I didn't give him cancer. Allegedly, thing. allegedly, <laughs> this is all rumor and superstition. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's that's a conspiracy theory I've just made up, and I hope it gains traction. <laughs> I, yeah, look, I think I think it's our job to make sure that gains traction. I think that's wonderful. Keep it going. Yeah, I, I better look and see. Did not give Lon Chaney Senior cancer. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> Bella, Bella Lugosi was like an undercover agent, and he just, <laughs> and he just inflicted this upon Lon Chaney Senior. I'm convinced he uh, is. See, everybody has the idea of the Karloff Lugosi uh, feud, and I'm just like, I think he secretly was working for ben- Boris Karloff's benefit. He's going like, no, 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 he's better, Absolutely. and he needs to be better. In order to do it, I've got to sacrifice myself. Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> what, what was it in? Uh, was it in Ed Wood? Wasn't it? Was it Karloff? That son of a bitch. <laughs> Karloff, sidekick? <laughs> Fuck you! That's the Karloff one. does not deserve to serve my shit! <laughs> Actually, 
not to bring up secret history of Hollywood at every given mm. point, but in the Universal series, he played yeah. that scene in there, and I just yes. love that it's among the scenes that he actually play, like right, clips that he plays. I'm just like, yes, you have to bring this in because. Yes. The idea of the Karloff Lugosi feud really mm. gets more traction these days because of Ed Wood. When in reality, yeah. it's not uh, uh, as 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 actual a feud as people might believe. <laughs> there, um, there, there can't be a feud with Boris Karloff. You, you no. you've heard his you've heard his voice on Adam's show. He sounds like a perfectly lovely <laughs> I'm, man. I'm, I'm too nice. It, it, I'm too nice a human being. Nobody uh, would want to be angry with me. Um, no, no and, nobody can be angry at Karloff. No, no. My heart has always been five sizes too big. <laughs> Contrary to that character that I played for all your children at Christmas time, oh, I have a heart time. so big that it needs a bigger body in order to encapsulate it. That's why I'm so fucking tall. He was a big, he was a big lad. He was, you know. Oh god, but, super but I mean, tall. He, had, he was, but I mean, he had to be imposing, doesn't he, to to, to play the monster? And so, yeah, you know, fair enough. Exactly. It, it worked. I mean, you watch you watch Bride of Frankenstein, and bearing in mind because we reviewed this on Radio Day, so bearing in mind that the the bride herself is in what 20 seconds of the film so oh that like i mean it's a couple minutes but like yeah it's, it's not long you you need <laughs> yeah it, you need somebody of his caliber and that yeah. his height to pull that off yeah absolutely yeah and both him and pretorius you get you get that you know it, how the the film is carried and it's all carried by Karloff because the bride is is in that last minute yeah, and so exactly. you know, and, and it's called the Bride of Frankenstein. What a misnomer! You know, <laughs> I, I I love that it like I I usually have, tend to be a fan of the thing that like just like oh well we're gonna show you the title of the movie in mm. the last ten minutes of the movie. Yeah. Um, the only time I don't really accept it is Beetlejuice because I'm just like just call it the freaking Deets or whatever. Like, it's, yeah. <laughs> I get oh, I, it. Uh, I, I it, it Tim or like the drives yeah. me up the wall. See, he, I was a huge Tim Burton fan in high school. But which is which is weird considering that I was also a huge Kevin Smith fan because the yeah. two are at odds with each other. They do but, not like each other. But like Tim Burton was my introduction to uh, a director having a style. It was the first time I noticed that a director had a style or a oh, uh, motif throughout their, their career. He's like a um, auteur for beginners. If you believe in the yeah. auteur theory, he's your you ju- your junior kit, if you will. Yeah, um, he's your go-to for, and for I, the start. Yeah, yeah, and I still like Tim Burton movies, but I'm selective now because mm. he's not doing anything close to what he used to do. No, um, no. Don't, don't, I, I gave don't up want, on him a long time ago, especially with the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory bollocks. See, I yeah. liked that in high school, uh, and then as oh, I got dude. older, I'm like, this is this is not great. I still think it's worth watching. Um, because I do think that it here's the thing, like hear me out on this. Oh, because it is adhe- <laughs> because it is adhering primarily to the novel and not trying to extend out so far into a musical. Right. It's interesting to watch how he adapts the material. And I don't think Johnny Depp is abhorrent in the movie. I think that he's not mm-hmm. as fun as Gene Wilder in retrospect. But who is? My who my is? De- my defiant high school spirit was like, No, 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 no. This is superior because it's it adheres to Roll Doll and now I'm older, I'm like no, it's a mess. It's a mess. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, I'll, I'll um, give you. I'll give you a little aside here. In the um, where where I live in the UK, I, I live in a town called York, a beautiful place. And uh, one night, I was walking down the street uh, that I just walked down a million times before, never any problems. And I walked out, get down onto the street, and there's thousands of people on this street. And it was like, hang on, what the hell is going on? And <laughs> ter- turns out, 
that Johnny Depp and Tim Burton were in a bar down this particular street. And they'd been to my town because this is the town where Kit Kats are made. Mm. And they'd been here to research the chocolate factory before they made the film. <laughs> and they had asked someone where they'd been and they'd gone, uh, right, we want to go to a bar. Where's good? And they'd gone, oh, there's this place. And it was just down the street that I was walking past. I could not get down the street because of thousands of people trying to see Johnny Depp and Tim Burton. Wow. <laughs> like that, and that, that would be a, uh, God. Can you imagine, like, just mm. trying to drink at the bar, going like, "Well, let's talk about the Kit fa- Kit factory and how it has to do with anything we're gonna do in this movie." S- like, seriously, they they had come here for research on a pr- on a real chocolate factory. It's like, well, obviously, it's not gonna be as mechanical or industrial minded as the one we're gonna do because I'm gonna put fantastic shit in it. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. But that's the, the one of the bonuses of living where I do is that yeah. every now and every now and again, when the weather's good, you get just a waft of chocolate smell. Yeah. Yeah. coming across Ooh. the town is is awesome. Yeah, it, yeah, it fills you with pure imagination, Smokey. <laughs> <laughs> it fills me with something, mate. <laughs> yeah, it, fills, it fills me with the desire to eat chocolate. <laughs> it really does. If I I pity anyone who's on a diet in this town because it's just oh. it's like it's, it's like it's taunting you, going, "You will, you will have a Kit Kat, you will." The, America, America used to have that problem with the amount of pies we would sit outside of windowsills. <laughs> Well, yes, of course. You know, yeah, enticing, in, enticing every neighbor and hobo imaginable. But now we don't put our pies on the windowsill anymore. <laughs> no, but, that's pro- that's probably for the best, though. I mean, um, but then, but then they're not real pies, are they? Because they because they're sweet pies. They're not savory pies. So you know, we we put meat in our pies. I know you, guys, you do, you, and you I, guys I, put, I mean, you guys put I, sweet things. I find I find it to be disturbing. But <laughs> well, I I know a lot of Americans do, and then but it was like that. Um, it was at the what was that movie? Uh, True Romance, you know that the Tarantino wrote. Yeah, and and the, there's Rosanna Arquette and Christian Slater, and they're, they're watching a kung fu movie, and then he says, "I like to watch a film and go and have a slice of pie," and it's like, "What? Why? Oh, right, that kind of pie. Okay, right. <laughs> that makes a lot more sense now. That is... <laughs> I need to rewatch True Romance now." That's such a good film. Oh god, movie. it is wonderful. Tony Scott was an underrated uh, director uh, to, to most, but wait, he's not the director we're talking about, unfortunately. Sorry, Although that'd be a Sorry. great retrospective. No, 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 you're fine. This is that this, was that was my aside. These these asides help us talk about the 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 modern context too. Um, but Cheney, on the other hand, though, yes. um, so he makes his mark of the vampire. No, <laughs> he makes his mark in the horror film genre. Um, by innovating it through these melodramas with elements of the outsider, elements of the uh, the the bizarre and the unknown, if you will. I mean, literally to the point where one of his movies is called The Unknown. Yeah. Um, and at the time of the sound era kicking into full force, Todd Browning is still making silent films, but uh, the tide is changing. Uh, Lemley Jr. brought... Thalber, Lemley Jr. brought Lon Chaney Sr. and Todd Browning aboard Dracula. Lon Chaney Sr. passes away. Todd Browning is still left to direct Dracula. They bring in Bela Lugosi. They make Dracula, which is Browning's first sound movie. And one of the things that has been brought up, not just by Adam, but other folks, uh, including David J. Scholars, is that Todd Browning 
doesn't really know how to make a sound movie. Um, he is much more capable when it comes to silent films. Um, and Th- I think, that's why half of Dracula is in silence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and without music too, which is like, I rewatched, uh, there's theaters open up in uh, Colorado and the Alamo right. draft house that we have uh, showed Dracula during, uh, for two screenings over the weekend. And I went to the last one right after film club. And um, watching the film on a big screen, it allows you to encapsulate those moments of genius that Browning has better, I feel. Um, It is still the problem with uh, uh, the drawing room drama shit going on in Dracula. It's so dull, mate. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Now, I'm a fan of Dracula, but it's primarily because of Lugosi. Um, mm. and, and, and actually it was a good experience watching it in the theater, which, you know, full disclosure, you know, the theaters we have out here are safe, triple check, double check with contact tracing. So I don't want to give the cool. impression that I'm trying to flagrantly no, 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 no. <laughs> say, say, say fuck the rules. Um, but, uh, that being said, um, we had a sizable crowd, uh, considering the limited capacity. Um, so like we're down to like less than 50% allowed in the theater, everything's spread yeah. out. It's still pretty packed, all considered. If there was no COVID, that thing would have been packed. Um, And I think it's a testament to Browning creating the look and the feel of what we would get with the Universal Monster movies later that then James Whale later refines and and perfects in Frankenstein a few months later. Um, And... But there are those moments in Dracula where, because it's just talking, mm-hmm. he's he's reverting back to drawing room drama. Like yeah. even the best lines coming out of Lugosi's mouth are coming in scenes where, you know, they're all you know standing around each other in the drawing room and nothing really interesting is going on. When the camera moves in those scenes, that's when things get exciting, and then it goes back to nothing. Um, sure. Unless unless Dwight Fry is filling the frame, in which case it doesn't the camera doesn't need to move. He needs to move <laughs> because yeah. he 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 has something about him that it's so over the top by today's standards. But I love when he uh, is talking about the rats that Dracula promises him that he can have. Like, yeah. I'm just like that. The look on his face, like the camera knows to fixate on him mm-hmm. um, now. Dracula, though, is a massive success. Sure. It, it paves the way for Frankenstein to happen. And MGM is not a studio that is going to turn away from a genre necessarily, although horror is not their mainstay. Um, MGM is primarily known for its dramas or its musicals. That's what it perfected. Um, and their uh, their ability to dip outside of those genres, um, which are primarily focused on fanciful entertainment, whether it be musical or comedy or even the sincere adaptations or dramas, uh, anytime they've gone out of this wheelhouse, it always produces either a massive undiscovered masterpiece or something that's just unwatchable. And Freaks falls into the former because Thalberg combined with the ingenuity of MGM was like, well, we, we need to make the ultimate horror movie. And so they bring back Todd Browning into the fold. Um, Browning had been with MGM at a certain point um, before he goes off to do Dracula. He comes back and the uh, MGM had purchased the rights to Todd Robbins story spurs for reported um, $8,000 at Todd Browning's insistence in the mid twenties. And, Harry Earls, the star of our movie today, 
um, who is a little person actor who was part of a family of other little people known as the Dancing Dolls, um, had appeared in The Unholy Three as the little person that Lon Chaney Sr. uses in his uh, uh, grifting schemes. Um, And Harry Earls was one of the original people to pitch the idea of acquiring this property. And it's clear that Harry Earls had larger ambitions for himself than you would have expected out of an actor, uh, a little person actor of the era. And props to him for recognizing, like, look, I have these limited options in this current era in Hollywood. This is a property that I can star in. Um, so he was very, um, he was very, he was very uh, aware of uh, how to position himself with it. Now, a story like Spurs doesn't have the ability to get made unless something like Dracula exists and is a hit because you're not going to justify anything in Spurs without that kind of precedent to be like, well, see, everybody likes dark shit in Dracula. We'll just do it with Spurs because Spurs is a short story that is mean, Uh nasty, and terrifying, and it's not because of people, the sideshow performers with abnormalities. It has everything to do with how everybody is portrayed and acts in that story. Um, and to turn it into the film Freaks is kind of an amazing overhaul because arguably the movie Freaks is not um, as mean-spirited as the short story is. Yeah. It has it has meanness to it, but it's redirected. So... Mm-hmm. Stahlberg initially offered Browning to direct Arsene Lupin, which was a detective story that would have combined John Barrymore and Lionel Barrymore, but Browning declined and he wanted to develop freaks. Um, And combined with Thalberg and MGM wanting an ultimate horror movie, this combines into this collaboration of creating freaks. He had worked on, uh, he had worked on developing this property because of his background in the circus. He had always found a fascination with the sideshow performers in particular. So the script is commissioned to adapt Spurs. And they have the two main writers on, credited on the film are Willis Goldbeck and Leon Gordon. And they bring the script to Thalberg, and Thalberg reportedly said, well, I asked for something horrible, and I guess I got it. <laughs> Didn't he just? Yeah, he did. So much so that he had to bring in Edgar Allan Wolf and uh, former uh, point of talk on the show, Al Bosberg, to write in uh, a levity to the film. So like a, a modern day comparison would be like when uh, Zack Snyder was making Justice League, the initial intent was to bring Joss Whedon on to lighten up the dialogue and lighten up the mood. And well, we all know what happened there. Yeah, let's, um, let's not talk about that. Yeah, we're not going to talk about it because I'm tired of fueling a fire that doesn't need to have fire. <laughs> doesn't need to have fuel. But Bozberg is actually a good person to bring into this fold because a lot of the things he did was touch up scripts uh, for comedians uh, who are starring in major properties, uh, not the least of which like people like Jack Benny or Burns and Allen. He would come in with the dialogue touch up. Uh, and uh, so he was a, uh, a, a script doctor in that sense. Sure. Um, yeah. It took about five months to get this thing shaped into what it ends up becoming. A lot of things change and a lot of things are scrapped and some things are added after the fact with this script. Um, little of the original story in Spurs is left in beyond the marriage of uh, Hans to Cleopatra. Yeah. Um, outside of that, it's pretty much a different story, but 
the intent is there because yeah, if you were going to going to adapt Spurs directly, you're talking about a film that I think you could make today, but it would be a very difficult prospect, and you would fall into the same canon yeah. of controversy as Freaks does. No, no studio would touch it nowadays. No, they no. would. They wouldn't. They, they, there's, there's just no way. I mean, uh, let me put it this way: you can, you can argue, argue all you want about uh, inclusivity and, 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 you know, and, and saying, well, you could because why don't those actors deserve a fair chance? But you know, the the other ninety nine percent of people would just go, "Well, no, you can't make this. Why? Why would you? As well, why would you? I mean, yeah, it. Th- this is the difference between yeah. it's a it's a it's a stark difference between inclusivity and exploitation. And, exactly. Yeah. And the and the story of Spurs, and consequently the story of Freaks. Mm-hmm. No matter how much compassion you bring to it, as mm-hmm. Browning did clearly, very much so. Yeah. You, you have to deal with the inevitable fact that, especially at this time, you are dealing with performers that, let's get it off the bat, there are performers in Freaks that mm-hmm. have uh, suffer from mental disabilities that it's unclear whether or not their consent would have been given to appear in the film. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk about a few of them because there's, there's a lot of... Um, remember when I said at the top how there's a lot of angles you can look at the, the, this film and then you... You said sure. the same thing too. Absolutely, yeah. People in the film historian community and film critic community mm-hmm. look at this film in in starkly different ways from each point. Yeah. Uh, David J. Skull and uh, Todd Robbins with two Ds, uh, who's a sideshow performer and historian, uh, both look at this from the concept of these performers would have had no other way to make a living unless they were in the sideshow. Um, now, while that is, uh, while that is fair to bring up, it also doesn't fully address the fact that some, a lot of these performers, including two very prominent performers who were the most famous of the sideshow performers in the film, uh, were people that were initially put into show business against their will. Uh Um, now I, I, I look at the film from that perspective and I, I have to, take in that information and sure. process it. And it's similar to any art that is controversial or problematic is there is a certain point where you have to put it to the side for a moment to watch the film as it's unfolding without the baggage, mm-hmm. but you, but you don't ignore the baggage it's there. And I think yeah. as we talk about the plot, we'll, we'll dive into <clears throat> parts of that while not making it the, I, I feel like if we make it the overall discussion, we'll be in for an t- entirely different discussion because it is important yeah. to talk about the story of this film. It um, it is. I mean, it's unavoidable, though, isn't it? I mean, <clears throat> this is this is <clears throat> what makes it such a unique beast. This film is that you can't avoid the the controversy, the controversy, whichever word you wish to say. It. Yeah. You, you can't you can't you can't sidestep it because it's right there. It's right in front of you. This is what I was saying before about that. You can't take your eyes off this because. It, and I, and I hate to use the the metaphor, but it, uh, of the the holding up a mirror to oneself. I mean, it, but yeah. it is there. It is there. You know, to be quote unquote normal, or are you? Again, I don't like the word, but are you a freak? You know, yes. I mean, yeah. The, and- I I suppose what uh, an overriding thing which does come through uh, more so on repeated viewings, I think, is that okay. Yes, it's not a nice word, but. 
the sideshow performers don't shy away from that word. No, they don't. They they, they actually kind of embrace it. Yeah, and there's a and, and that that to me falls into the context of if the performer themselves is embracing the term. Yeah. Then 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 the it's it's not to soften the blow, but it is a, it is something to account for when it comes to this. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. there are several performers in the film who uh, did not like their participation in the film. No, um, no, but there are others that did appreciate their. Um, uh, so there, there is a much like the controversy surrounding the film. There are multiple ways uh, that people viewed this film. It is, and, and I, I'll tell you one of the reasons why I still love the movie is because yeah. it is. I think good films are a Rorschach test. Good oh, okay. film, a good film is a Rorschach test because it's going to. Position yourself to decide good or bad. Like whenever I look at a film that's fifty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, um, right. one I have to take into account that it's an aggregate, and I have to actually read those reviews instead of just yeah. looking at a tomato meter and then getting angry and then lambasting the audience rating of Captain <laughs> Marvel with sexist comments. But uh, that, yeah, no, that's another discussion entirely. That's another discussion. I love that entirely. movie. It's, it's a good so movie, good. right? It's yeah, fun. Yeah. It's a fun nineties movie. And Samuel yeah. Jackson is running around shooting things, and he looks like he did in the Negotiator, and I fucking love it. <laughs> oh yeah! Now yeah. you're talking. <laughs> yeah, uh, and 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 also we get Coulson again who doesn't fucking mm. love colson um that's brilliant and but anyway uh the yeah. i think that uh when you look at the aggregate on some of those films though mm. it's interesting how those films end up being like some people will proclaim it a masterpiece and others will say it's trash and, sure. a, and a film that relates to this film is one we'll talk about where the where the reviews are very much split down the middle uh mm. in its final reception in regards to freaks if you look at the aggregate spoilers for uh, the reception part of the film, it's at a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes from 55 modern critics reviewing it. So people, right. even if the individual reviews point out the problematic issues, they see it as a benefit. Yeah. And so we should jump into the plot of the film at this point. Mm. Um, but I will sure. give the I would I want to I think it's important to read off the names of the different people appearing in the film. So I will go by them one by one. Sure. Um, we've got Wallace Far Wallace Ford as Frozo, Leela Hyams as Venus, Olga Blaklanova as Cleopatra, Roscoe Otz as Roscoe, Henry Victor as Hercules, Harry Earls as Hans, Daisy Earls as Han uh, as Frida. Um, Rose Dion as Madame Tetralini, Daisy and Violet Hilton as the Siamese twins, Schlitzie as himself, Josephine Joseph as the half-man, half-woman, Johnny Eck as half-boy, Francis O'Connor as armless girl, Peter Robinson as the human skeleton, Olga, o Olga Roderick as the bearded lady, Cuckoo the bird girl as herself, Prince Randian as the living torso, Martha Morris as Angelo's armless wife, Elvira Snow as Pip, Jenny Lee Snow as Zip, Elizabeth Green as the Bird Girl, Angelo Rosito as Angelo, and you know you love these guys, uh, at least one of them, Smokey, Edward Brophy, and Matt McHugh as the Rollo Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. How, how Absolutely. Is, how does Edward Brophy manage to be in every fucking thing ever? <laughs> I don't know, but he but he manages it. Uh, you he, know, he, he, he's bloody he's a, everywhere. He's a mouse in Dumbo. You you know Edward Brophy from the moment you're a child these days. Like <laughs> I do. And Mr. Smith goes to Washington as well. Yeah, so, yeah. yep. Edward yeah, Brophy. He, uh, it, who, wait, we we'll touch on him for a second. He's got 
he's got a credits list that any actor would dream of, and I think the mm. only one who tops him is Danny Trejo. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I like it. We've compared Freaks to Captain Marvel, and now we've co- compared Brophy to Danny Trejo. I like it. I like, I like where this is going. <laughs> if, if I don't hear Danny Trejo list Edward Brophy as an inspiration, I'll lose faith in the world. <laughs> uh, but you would remember Edward Brophy primarily throughout a bunch of gangster movies of the era, not the least of which is a, uh, a film club rewatch, which was a slight case of murder. Right, um, yeah. And he's also in Golden Boy. Um, he's uh, he's in Speak Easily. Uh, I was in Mad Love as well. Mad Love, yes. Yeah. Uh, Dumbo, as mentioned, he plays Timothy Q. Mouse. He went uncredited because only Mel Blanc would be credited in the voice world. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why disney never fully worked like, never worked with him after dumb uh, after pinocchio because pa- he's he supposedly plays uh honest john's sidekick <laughs> um, <laughs> but i'm just like yeah i <coughs> i guess that's that's something but actually we just found out recently through leonard malton's website that um Mel Blanc was Ka the Snake in the Alexander Corda Jungle Book. So he did go uncredited for a lot of uh, film appearances because they didn't credit voiceover actors until Mel Blanc was like, well, say, can't you just, uh, you know, give me credit for shit? (laughs) (laughs) It Uh, works. (laughs) Exactly. Now, now we only remember him because of that one, one moment where he's just like, how about this? (laughs) Um, So we will jump into the plot. We open up and we hear, creepy calliope music <laughs> yeah uh and we see this uh it's the only real title card at the beginning is just the the uh the the, the opening card that says you know mgm presents irving uh presents todd browning's production of freaks you see yeah. caricatures of the different uh sideshow performers uh amidst the the word freaks and then immediately a hand tears through the <laughs> through the paper so already it's gonna grab you by the throat <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely, and and to be perfectly honest, uh, saying that it's only an hour long, that it grabs you by the throat and it doesn't let go. As I, I although I, I mean, I know I said that it does, it does drag in places when it really shouldn't. But it, as I said, you can't take, you can't let your attention wander because yeah, I mean, there there is a hell of a lot of dialogue to keep up on. All right, some of it's superfluous, really, to the story because yeah. if you've got the the basics of the story in that, you know. That uh, what is it? Beautiful woman wants to marry a dwarf because he's got a, a large inheritance coming to him. It's like, yeah. well, that's pretty much it, really, for the basics. So everything else is just forgive the pun, but a sideshow to the to the main plot. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. This know, is sorry. Hitch. This is little Hitch. I really like puns, and I and Smokey, <laughs> you're now my new best friend. <laughs> I do apologize. Uh, fun, 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 fundamental problem with this, though, is that v, do you all right? Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just an old man. But Venus and Cleopatra look far too similar for my liking. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was a bit. Oh, thank God! They're, intercha- oh. they're interchangeable. They really the are. Only, the only thing that's differentiating the two is that Olga Baklanova has an accent, and Leela Hines yeah. just sounds like any ingenue ever. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, and, and one's got a mole, and that was yeah. it. And then, then the rest, of, I'm I'm looking, I'm going right. Hang on, which am I, which one am I looking at now? And thankfully, they say their names quite a lot. Yeah, and so I was like, oh, thank God. Yeah, they're <laughs> clarifying it. It's funny that you mention uh, Venus and uh, Cleopatra because mm. there were initially other people in these roles. Uh, now, 
for uh, Venus, uh, it was initially ha- announced that Jean Harlow would take the role, and it was oh, announced yes, in the trades. That, yeah. yeah, but then uh, she was replaced by Leela Hyams. Now, the bigger one, though, I would argue, is that initially Cleopatra was going to be played by Myrna Loy. And that, that very different. <laughs> yeah, very different. And Myrna Loy read the script and then went over to Thalberg and said, like, I'm begging you, take me out of this movie. Like, yeah. I'll do I'll do anything. I, I, I you know what? I'll I'll play the wife of a drunken detective for six movies. <laughs> <laughs> if it means yeah. I don't have to do freaks. And she. Th- probably made the right choice oh she did because who doesn't i as you guys talked about in all the best lines and as Mm. i've always felt doesn't matter how bad the films get any adventure with nick and nora is worth it worth your time and absolutely and uh so yes she definitely made the right call by not being in the Mm. movie um although i would argue for when we talk about horror films it's actually interesting is that horror actors have a better shelf life than most actors period um because there's always a cult that uh, will Uh, surround uh, admiration around it. Like Donald Pleasance probably wouldn't have been (laughs) most remembered today had he not starred as the greatest British doctor ever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And by greatest, I mean the most unstable. Well, he was, yeah, he was a little, a, a little flaky, wasn't he? Yeah, but he, he but, starts I mean, off calm, and then he becomes to the point of shaking children in five. <laughs> well, he's I can't really my, blame him for that one. He's but, still my favorite character in the movies, though. That's absolutely wonderful. But uh, but the thing is, though, is that is that horror fans are possibly the most passionate out of all genre fans i think mm-hmm. including golden age cinema fans i mean i know i mean the, the great thing about golden age cinema is it's getting a real renaissance at the moment and it's really coming so many more people are enjoying it and that is part of the reason why all the best lines exist mm-hmm. but um but when it comes to horror man god uh, um I think it was actually adam who said this is that you know we, we'll see this film once from 1984 and love it so much realize that there isn't a decent release of it and hound a company to release a special edition blu-ray and it'll happen yeah eventually you you will you will you will find them banging at the gates for a lot of this it's why like scream factory Mm. uh scream factory has uh there was a there was there's times when they've done interviews where they've had the two main representatives doing interviews and uh they they would be thrown titles that people clearly wanted and they would have to explain, like, the rights are an issue. The rights are an issue. And yeah. so they actually, like, a lot of these uh, specialty labels work their asses off to get a lot of these things released. They really do. It's actually interesting. Like, Warner Brothers has now been cooperating with Shout Factory recently, and I would really love them to get their hands on Freaks. Like, mm. it, even if you didn't put any more special features over there. But there is no real Blu-ray available no. of Freaks, uh, which kind of sucks. And I don't know if the elements are so bad that they can't do a transfer of it, but... <sighs> Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I, I, I looked at purchasing uh, a Blu-ray of, of, of Freaks, and the only one I could get, unfortunately, I don't have a multi-region player, but the only one I could get was from the US, or maybe it was Canada, but um, I think it was the US. Um, and I just, it, and, and it was extortionate price as well, and so yeah. it's just like, it wasn't worth it. Okay, then I haven't even found the Blu-ray that's available. I'll have to look and see if it's available in the States. I've only just known about it on DVD, which, again, like... Warner Brothers is really good about putting out DVDs that are wonderful to watch. Like they, they oh, still yeah. hold up. Like the transfer still holds up. Like the encoding on the disc is uh, always great. Now, in the regards of, uh, in the regards of uh, a film like 
freaks when it comes mm-hmm. to like what horror stars do you talk about? There isn't like one there, but Olga no. Bokanova does mm-hmm. have horror pedigree. Mm-hmm. She's in The Man Who Laughs, oh. uh, which is uh, a film that has obviously gone on to inspire a character that has somehow gotten two actors, two Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> One of them deserved. The other one, I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, because I'm not. Well, I'm. I'm. I should clarify. I don't hate Joker. Uh, okay. I have. I have complicated feelings about Joker. Um, but okay. Adam was the one who pointed out to me how well it works on a Hitchcockian level for certain scenes. So I can. Oh, and I'll never. Yeah, and I'll never dismiss um, anybody who attempts to do something like that with a major property. I think I just have a problem with Todd Phillips putting his foot in his mouth. <laughs> yeah, he did yeah. do that a little bit. He but I, he made the comedy. <laughs> well, there, there's something about that film though that it, it's the ballsiness of it though yeah. that, that that's that's what worked for for the Joker because it could have gone in so many different ways and it could have been pulpy. It could have been well shit and right. and it and it and it just it wasn't it, it because it just just said well here forgive the metaphor but here's my joker cock on your desk yeah. right you either look at it you either stroke it or you just ignore it and a lot of people looked at it and stroked it so yeah you know exactly and, and, the terrible and, pro- metaphor. and props to the film for you know making people aware of the mm. films that inspired it which i'm always yeah. i'm always a, I'm, a, I'm an advocate for even if i don't you know, again, we're not here to talk about Joker. We're here to talk about for, uh, Sorry, freaks. I keep um, but no, no, it's fine. And it, I, I, I started the fire. And it, was always, <laughs> it was always burning since the world's been turning. Um, but no, the man who laughs is. The... Oh, thank you, Mister Joel. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still wanting him to re-release a new version with everything that's happened within the last thirty years. <laughs> um, there, there was there but, was uh, there was an artist I saw many years ago um, who did uh, that song, but changed all the lyrics to be about Brexit. And it was, it was, it was genius. I saw it live as well. And it was just, it was like, oh, this is wonderful. And I can't remember any of the lyrics. (laughs) I was in a uh, uh, social studies class in high school where we had to do a project about rewriting the lyrics to uh, We Didn't Start the Fire. And in order to do that, we, we rewatched that music video 15 times. Ah, lovely. <laughs> and I still don't remember the lyrics. <laughs> it's, it, it does get complicated, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, the, the one I remember the most is Chubby Checker Psycho, Belgians in the Congo. <laughs> I'd see, you remember more than I do. Yeah, maybe we could rewrite We Didn't Start the Fire, but change all the, the, the lyrics to um, Be About Freaks. How about yeah, that? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Should see Johnny X, something, something, Harry Earls. <laughs> Can you imagine trying to fit Prince Randian into that? My God, there's a right tongue twister in it. Prince Randian cigarette. Oh my God, he lit it. <laughs> oh, you fucking nailed it. All right, I'm, I'm calling Billy Joel now. No, I got no, a, no. I've got a great idea. Who are you? <laughs> it's, it's Marvin. Your cousin Marvin. Sorry, no. Marvin Joel. <laughs> <laughs> You know that you know that convoluted uh, song you were looking for. <laughs> listen to listen this. To this. <laughs> anyway, the man who laughs, which has Olga Bokanova in it, uh, the the movie is known in history as because of the face Conrad Veidt has on it, it inspires the Joker, and it also has 
connotations of the sideshow enveloped in it. Um, Paul Lenny, uh, the director of that film, had a similar fascination with the macabre as did Browning. Um, and here, we 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 she permeates the film as we're going to find out, not just from her normal appearance, but what happens to her afterward. But the film opens up. We have this uh, outside talker. Um, I've I learned that they're called outside talkers and not barkers. So, uh, okay. but he, regardless, he's the Browning stand-in, um, as alluded to by many fans. He's played by Murray Kennel, uh, and this stuff was shot after the fact. This wasn't in the initial script. Um, oh, okay. And uh, this was pro- probably made within the context of like this particular opening. But there are more. Uh, uh, lines to it that were cut for time um, but it actually the lines that are cut for time actually end up alluding to the fact that you know like the the, the, the one of the lines is these these abominations don't look upon their their condition with with sorrow they've embraced it like so there's 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 early on there's even evidence whether regardless of it existing or not of people uh wanting to tell this story in such a way that it doesn't denigrate its performers. So what I, what we'll find interesting throughout the movies is that the performers themselves, anytime they are denigrated, it's at the, um, it's at the doing of normal people and they are characters you are designed to not like. Um, even though how an audience of the era would have perceived those characters, regardless of their vile nature that we clearly see, is ultimately the Rorschach of this film of just like, well, who are you identifying with here? Um, And so this Barker, you know, comes around, he goes, we didn't lie to you folks. We told you we had living, breathing monstrosities. Um, And he takes this group of people over to one of them. uh, And she, uh, he speaks about the code of the freaks um, that offend one and you offend them all. Um, which is a which is a slogan that has you know has several different connotations today, but has permeated because of freaks. I would argue, because yeah. it is because of the way it's written. Like it is a sure. is a very well written phraseology. Um, very much so. Yeah, um, um, but but also it should be pointed out that obviously what he's referencing at that point we can't see, and that that's brilliant. That, yeah, I mean that what what a way to open the film. Yeah, because it's, it's you need to know what's in that box. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's after the fact that they thought of doing this, going like Browning yeah. sitting back, going like, "Do we need to like you know set up the ending of the movie by I don't know making a bookend or whatever? I don't know. I don't yeah. understand talking movies. I only understand silent <laughs> movies. I, when I, people I mean, talk, it throws me. <laughs> if it, well, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> but I mean, it's it's a flash forward. Yeah, when when a flash flash forwards just weren't that prevalent, really. No. And, and so you know you've got this you've got this wonderful setup and and you're hooked straight away. I mean that was that was my personal point of view anyway. Yeah. It was just like, and I mean I was going all I was going Brad Pitt. I was like, what's in the box? <laughs> <laughs> and trust me, I would much rather see Gwyneth Paltrow's head in that box rather than what we do end up seeing. No, 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 no. Duck, duck girl's got the hip of hand now. <laughs> Does she? Does no, she really? no, she doesn't. No, she's no. got she's got a candle that smells like a vagina. That's I, all. I, she's I'm got. I'm sorry, Bradley. My bad. I I meant that uh, Harry Earls has the upper hand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, but this is it. I mean, what you said was actually really good. Was um, was the fact that uh, say we're again tread carefully. If if you're an able-bodied person, 
I think is the best way I can put it, is do you are supposed maybe to connect more with the other able-bodied people in this. Right. Yes, that would be the 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 general consensus, if you will, if you were looking at it, it by basic logic. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But of course, it's never. And, and, and trust me, this film smashes it in your face. Is that it's not cut and dried in this film at all. Yeah. In the fact that, and don't get me wrong, the uh, the sideshow performers are not uh, innocent <laughs> shall we no, say no well yeah i think there's a line there's a there's mm. a weird line that that's drawn that we'll talk about because um yeah. one of the things i didn't mention is that this film does inspire a graphic novel that is actually i'd argue closer to spurs um, oh really um, yes and it's actually written by Brian Johnson and Walt Flanagan uh from mm. uh View Askew fame um yeah, yeah, yeah. it's called uh, Carney and uh, it's actually a very very good horror graphic novel um, but the idea of the freaks and them being no more innocent than the regular humans, I feel mm. like in freaks the the line is muddled a little bit. Yeah, very much so because you do find out that um, the Hercules and Cleopatra are complete bastards. Yes, and and you know they they're only out for themselves. They're only looking out for for a good time to. To, to drink and dine and shag and and then ultimately come away with quote unquote the prize yeah and 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 I, I don't know about you mate but I hated them from the very beginning oh I hate <laughs> them too we we're gonna we're gonna introduce one of them because she was known as the mm. peacock of the air the dun, 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 dun. and we <laughs> we get Olga Boklanova uh uh, doing her act, and we see Harry Earls playing Hans. And... It's really not much of an act, though. <laughs> no, it's not. She's she's some kind of trapeze artist. She, nonsense. She's sat on a swing. <laughs> yeah, she's. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's all she fucking does. Smokey, my nephew could do a circus act. Then, if that's the case, yeah, my nephew I, I knows how to swing. swing get paid. <laughs> all right, Mattis. You yeah. love your uncle, don't you? Well, oh, yeah. you know what you know what would make you the greatest kid in the world? No, go, sw- go, go, go be on a swing in a circus for money. Oh, really? <laughs> okay, I could do that. Now, I know what you, and I know what you think in Mattis. This is not some this is not a great profession for somebody of your intelligence, but hear me out. Yeah. It's good to exploit idiots who pay money to watch this stuff because if they're being duped by this, well, they'll be duped by anything. <laughs> and, and trust me, they'll be talking about it nearly a hundred years later. We saw we saw we saw this kid swinging and it was the most amazing thing the magic of the circus. Yes, the animals were abused, but the magic of the circus. <laughs> oh, who cares about that? No one's going to remember the, them in 20 the, years. Yeah, the Ringling Brothers were a genius. The PT Barnum was a genius. Every Oh my god, so wonderful. Yeah, we'll talk about PT Barnum because I have some thoughts about about how he fits into this. But okay. anyway, yes, we have Hans Sorry. and Frida talking. No, you're good. Yeah, um Hans and Frieda are talking, played by Harry Earls and Daisy Earls, who are actually brother and sister. They are not um, husband and wife. And that, that, uh, that's, that feels a little icky. Yeah, it, well, it, it, especially within the context of certain scenes they have with each other, it definitely takes you aback once you hear that information. If you never heard yeah. that information, you wouldn't have even given it a second thought. Well, you would you would just assume with having the same surname that they were husband and wife. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but in fact, th- they and were. Then you find out they're siblings. It's like ah. Ah, it it yeah. it makes certain scenes interesting as we'll find out. But they are talking about, uh, uh, like Hans is entranced by Cleopatra, and she said he says she is the be- most beautiful big woman I have ever seen. Um, 
And, you know, Frida's like, like, Hans, how you talk? I should be jealous pretty soon. Ah, yeah. don't be silly. Now, it would be it would be easy for me on this show to try to do imitations of them. But the bottom line is I'm not going to do it. One, Ew. because that would be a horrible idea. And number two, <laughs> this is something that I admire about performers. And when, when I notice it, I'll recognize it right off the bat is that like Harry and Daisy are really good actors. Like they're very oh, good. Yeah. They're very good. And what's interesting is, is that like given the performances they give and other, uh, the other sideshow performers give, yeah. it's amazing to think that, uh, the the other normal looking people who are contracted by MGM on a more regular basis end up being the weakest performances in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And, it, and also, um, I know we're skipping forward a little bit here, but yeah, there's, a scene, there's, a, there's a scene with Daisy when she's talking to Venus. She's she's hanging out uh, her washing on the line, Yeah, which obviously is a very low line. Sorry. Um, but she is. And, um, <laughs> and uh, sorry. And it's a, and it's a, it's a, there was something. She's brilliant. I mean, I yes, he is good, but she is outstanding. She this. heart. She breaks your heart. Like. She really does. I mean, and and you see her, and she's she's trying to sort of win the favor of her husband back, and she's kind of dolled herself up a little bit, and and that's not a joke. I'm saying, yeah, but she has she has prettied herself for him a bit I, more. I I, I I forgive you, Smirky. You know, I forgive you. I don't know if Zach's going to deal with it, but I I forgive you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> But she has, and uh, and it was, and as you say, it breaks your heart because she's trying so hard for this shit to pay her more attention. Yeah, and and it's oh god, it, it's it's. I mean, take away the the sideshow element of it. It's her performance that just sort of makes you go, oh for fuck's sake, will yeah. you please, will and, you please notice your wife? Yeah, exactly. And Hans's Hans's arc in the movie is interesting because he has mm. to. It sounds like a regressive theme, but he has yeah. to learn a lesson about how the world views him. Very uh, much so, yeah. I think that Hans's arc <laughs> is tricky to an audience today because it seems to reinforce the idea of you're better off with people that look like you or mm -hmm. act like you and whatnot. But I don't, I don't look at it that way. I think I look no. at it as I, I look at it as somebody who is seeing the the is unveiling for himself the cloak of human compassion is actually a, 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 a disguising a prejudice sure. um, and uh so i think that that's the actual arc of it but it's obviously at the time of this it would be construed a different way and the mm -hmm. the good thing about art in all of its forms is that you can interpret it as the d decades go on and assess it under new lenses um because yeah. Well, one, Todd Browning's not going to come up from the grave to defend anything that I would say, but or or, well, or, no. to, or to admonish me. Although well, that'd, yeah. be, that'd be fucking cool if he did. That would be awesome. <laughs> be like no, zombie, I, zombie Browning. Yeah, but, I mean, like I know, dude. I don't want to get caught. I don't want to talk about your films, man. Like, can we talk about the fact that you're walking around right now, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Browning? You're the Walking Dead right now. Can yeah, we not you, talk about that you, instead you, of freaks? You, hey, hey, it's nighttime and you are living and you are dead. This is Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> Yeah. Did, did did you know that half of your film is missing now? We can't see it. <laughs> what? <laughs> no. Oh god damn it. Yeah, right. But enough of that. Can we talk about the devil doll, please? <laughs> yes, I got some friends. They really want to know more about the devil doll. I want to I, I kind of want to know actually about Dracula cuz I want to know like what threw you about talking movies? Like what what was the problem here? 
<laughs> what was no, the issue? No, t- no, don't don't listen to Zach, Mister Browning. No, no, no. Shush, shush, shush. Right, no, we need we need to talk about the devil. Dot is how, how did you persuade Oscar winner Lionel Barrymore to talk with that silly voice and dressing look, <laughs> with look, a wig and a dress? Look, I don't know what everybody's messing around about, but I'm just a simple old Kentucky Kentucky boy zombie, <laughs> and I don't appreciate being bombarded with questions. What run I want to really know is why did they get rid of my footage? Like they didn't take care of it in a vault somewhere. Well, no, uh, Mr. Uh, Browning, they actually let it fall into disrepair, or yeah. or you're not going to say there was a fire, was there? Yeah, no. there was a fire. God fucking <laughs> no, damn there it! Wasn't. No, no, shush! No, there wasn't. There wasn't a fire at all. We just, nope, we nope. just mislaid it. I, nope, I, now I've got to burn it all down, because if I can't have my full film, nobody can. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how Hollywood was destroyed. Thanks! That, 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 uh particular discourse actually happened by the way Let me yeah <laughs> fun we, we, fact. Me, me and zach are reading that verbatim yeah yeah fun, fun fact this is uh this is th- this is us actually talking to <laughs> zombie tom browning <laughs> yeah. yeah um oh can you well, imagine that'd be wonderful <laughs> meanwhile though living todd browning <laughs> he he made uh he he so when we get into these scenes with mm. uh daisy and uh with uh, hans and frida yeah. Um, we get Cleopatra coming off of the uh, her trapeze act or her swing act, as we've been calling it. <laughs> um, and we see this first instance of her, you know, like uh, dropping her cloak, like she's flirting with Hans. Mm. And it's clear from the way she uh, interacts with him that she is definitely making fun of him in a way yeah. that Hans is not identifying immediately. And, um, you know, obviously, as we'll as we'll discuss down the line here, mm-hmm. Hans's ability to discern between being made fun of and genuine affection is very skewed. Yeah. Um, and we get uh, uh, the next scene was actually initially intended to be the opening of the movie, which you have uh, people coming, walking through a forest. Um, and there is two gentlemen walking through and the, uh, 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 one of them is a Russian gentleman. He's actually Michael Visseroff, who was the innkeeper in Dracula, who tells him, no, you mustn't go up there. We people are the mountains believe. <laughs> like that. Uh, so he's a where, where, where was he from again? Dracula. <laughs> uh, uh, he's supposed to be from Russia. <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> With that voice? <laughs> no, you mustn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's from Scotland. Oh, okay. Uh, no, I, no, I, I can't do a Russian, so that's why my Russian sounds Scottish. Um, it's, it's all right. Sean Connery couldn't either. Yeah, no, 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 I fucking couldn't. Like that's <laughs> Smokey. I, I couldn't, I couldn't play a Russian in Hunt for Red October. And I told the director, no, this is just how I'm going to talk. It's not, uh, it's not too dissimilar <laughs> from me playing a Spaniard in Highlander. Okay, nobody gives a fucking goddamn crap. <laughs> he's a Spanish Spanish Egyptian, and he still sound, sounded Scottish. But I mean, yeah, you can't oh die I, a I, cloud. I, I always, I always wanted Sean Connery to say hello to me. That was really nice. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, not a problem, Smokey. You're you're one of the few people I still trust in this realm. <laughs> Everybody else is out to fuck me and my legacy. First, that goddamn nerd in his basement talking about money, which is clearly my superior performance. And now, now. Out of everything else in this goddamn world, we're trying to question my accent in uh, Hunt for Red October? No, no. Yeah. Sorry, not allowing it. It's <laughs> um, that scene when they're singing the Russian uh, national anthem. And they're going, oh, but they'll hear us. We won't be silent. And he just goes, let them shing. <laughs> 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 
It's like, oh, you didn't even try, Sean. Come on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, let me try. Da. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! You got it. <laughs> I see. I could be a fucking Russian. I I can be Vladimir Putin. Uh, of course you can. No, sure. but anyway, the the scene where they're walking through the forest was initially the opening, yes. and theoretically, this is actually a great way to open the movie if you're if your intent is to be a horror movie because we see sure. the different sideshow performers dancing around and splashing around. One of the scenes that was cut. In fact, involved a performer that was really cut from the movie predominantly, which is Edith the Turtle Girl. She's an African-American um, sideshow performer who had arms and legs that resemble flippers. And there's a scene where Madame Tetralini, the caretaker, is swimming with her and saying you would be much more uh, you, you. I'm sure you would much more prefer not having your your nightgown on as you swim through uh, swim through the uh uh, swimming around, I'd think you'd rather be hanging around in the mud. And thankfully, it's cut along with another scene involving uh, Venus's trained seal pursuing Edith the Turtle Girl because of how similar they are alike, not Holy just shit. from appearance, but also skin color related. So thankfully, somebody somebody who didn't realize they were being progressive thought, we don't need this. <laughs> yeah, and trimmed Christ. it. Yeah, so I, as a result... I'm glad that didn't happen. Yeah, exactly. As a result, Edith the Turtle Girl only appears in this scene, and then later on uh, in underneath the caravans of the carnival. Yes. Um, yeah. So, But right now, this is her predominant entry into the film, but we also have the microcephalic uh, uh, performers, uh, Pip and Zip and Schlitzie, yeah. And we also have Angelo Rosito uh, and Johnny Eck, the half boy. Um, and it freaks out the two passersby and Matter Tetralini says like, no, I. Was that a pun? What? Was that a pun? No, no, no. <laughs> it, free- it freaked them out? It freaked them out. No, 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 no. He just talked with the stream of consciousness. He had no intention. He had no intention of being that clever. You give him to, too much I fucking to credit. I that one. <laughs> No, no, mine have to. You, in order for it to be true, it has to be supremely obvious and supremely stupid, uh, and then to be appreciated on the level see, of punnery. <laughs> I, I, I was going to give you so much credit there. I was no, going to no, say it was one all on you, the pun. No, you shouldn't. He's a fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah, but, but then also we couldn't leave it at one all, can we? Because Americans don't like ties, do they? No. <laughs> I've got to move on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway sorry mate (laughs) Tetralini goes like please these are my children I let them play in the sunshine every so often the two gentlemen walking by go like well whatever we'll let it pass by actually the one Michael Visseroff is the one who's still very taken aback and Mm. there ends up being a discussion about like like monsters monsters and Tetralini says something interesting about like, what did I tell you? You must not be afraid of them. You must not mm. be. You not you must not show that you're afraid. God yeah, yeah. protect all the ch- all the all his children. So like already she's instilling the idea of like you don't need to be ashamed of who you are. Don't show off fear. Um, and from there the the movie becomes a series of episodic instances that are tangentially tied to the plot. Um, because there are certain relationships that develop with the normal looking people, quote unquote. And, uh, and then the sideshow performers have, with the exception of, uh, Hans and Frida are very much relegated to just like appearances to show off their talents. 
Um, yeah. uh, and uh, the first of these that we get is we see the Rollo brothers hanging out and we see Josephine Joseph, uh, the half man, half woman. Uh, this is a common trope of the era for hermaphroditic or intersex people, as they prefer to be called, and you know, I think it's a more proper terminology. That's fair uh, enough. Yeah. To, to be uh, to be displayed in the uh, the uh, the after show, if you will, of the sideshow, where they would were allowed to get racier. These were also be instances where you would see a strip tease, as seen in the show Carnival. Um, and uh, Josephine Joseph, there's not much known about her, but yeah. something about that the documentary on the uh, 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 DVD points out is is that they would uh, it's an odd uh, way they would have to get around like showing too much uh, both on stage and most certainly in this film is that they would build up the muscles on one side of their body and uh, not allow and not do the same on the other one to mm-hmm. create that femininity look uh, versus that masculine look so it, it yeah. ends up being a very stark image um, Very now, yeah. in ter- and in terms of how this holds up today, the answer is, well, they're not really paying much attention to it beyond the the two jokes, not jokes, but uh, the two instances of her being acknowledged. Um, yeah. If you were to look at this today, we're, we're dealing with a lot of issues with people not being tolerant of transgender people. And I think that the discussion of Josephine Joseph falls into that realm. Obviously, you would not do the half man, half woman. If you were going to try to make remake freaks today, you wouldn't be yeah. addressing that at all. Um, and rightfully no, so. I don't so. think it's needed. Um, I, I, I think it's, and thankfully she's not in the, she's not in the movie that much anyway. So I don't think it's uh, a huge issue to contend with. Although Hercules does punch her in the face. Um, and yeah. uh, it's, it's disturbing. Um, and, and, it, and, it, and it exemplifies the fact that he's a villain. So it, it's it's it does a good job at setting up the fact that you are not meant to care about this person at all. Um, but then we we get the Josephine Joseph part, and then uh, and it's kind of revealed that the movie takes place in France, or at least it's not even it's not being too specific. But I mean, like the story, it's the the short story takes place in France, so I'm assuming that they're just kind of transplanting the idea. I think it's mainly just a generalized sideshow. There's just a lot of different nationalities of performers involved in it. But if I, I had to, so. yeah. if I had to take a guess, I'd say it's at least a European sideshow that they're yeah. attempting to uh, aesthetically homage. Um, well, a lot, a lot of them seem to actually speak with European accents, but obviously they're speaking in the English language, but, um, but there is a lot of varying, uh, accents that are, that go all the way through this film. Yeah, exactly. Except for Edward Brophy. Yeah. Edward Brophy hmm. speaking Brooklynese, so <laughs> yeah, which is, which is an actual language. But <laughs> oh, is that is that real? <laughs> no. By by that I mean it's only really spoken by two people: Edward Brophy and William Bendix. <laughs> so okay, <laughs> I will take your word for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I mean but, like it. It's it's the it's the accent uh, of New York, mm. if you will. Um, but at, at any rate, uh, we also get Leela Hyams as Venus uh, interacting mm. with Hercules, and they are uh, through as a couple because Hercules is, uh, is clearly a not a decent man at all. <laughs> no, he's an absolute wanker. He's just oh god. I'm through wasting my time and money on tramps like you. And I love that she comes back with, yeah, your time, but my money. Yeah. (laughs) Go on, sister. And he 
he has the audacity to keep her perfume and use it. <laughs> I'm, I'm like that. It's sort of it's a weird thing because he he goes ungrateful little Trump and he sprays himself with the perfume. I'm like, what is this doing for you? <laughs> this does it's, nothing to help your circumstance. <laughs> it really doesn't. But it's just the it's the ultimate sort of thing of just wasting shit, isn't it? I yeah. Mean, that's it. I mean, that's that is is raison d'etre in this is to just waste and take and and that's all he's ever yeah bothered about yeah but he's he doesn't the, like perfume but he likes the idea of controlling the perfume absolutely yeah <laughs> he, he's just he's just wanting to wind her up basically as much as possible yeah but i, I it's got to be said though that i know it's going to sound a little odd but venus to me is the hero of the piece yeah because she's got the biggest heart out of everyone i mean well sort she's of. she's the but, least self-centered yeah <laughs> Actually, yeah, that's that's a that's actually a better way of putting it. She is she is the least self centered of everyone there because ultimately, okay, granted they they're looking out for each other. Yes, all right, that's fine. And obviously, by the end, we find that's seriously true. Yeah, but yeah, she is. She she just wants to be nice and help people, and and I like that. She she's the moral center, if you will, of this film. Yeah, and she's about to be paired with, uh. A fine person, but a little bit more than obsessed with his clown ambitions, which is Froso the Clown, yeah. uh, played by Wallace Ford. And th- their first interaction is him- her dressing him down as he's taking off his makeup and having the delayed reaction of all delayed reactions. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like yeah. he was just like, look, I'm still technically high on weed. <laughs> but the moment you stop talking, I'm going to realize I've been insulted. <laughs> If he started, if he started talking like Cheech Marin, it wouldn't have surprised me at all. Hey, man, Frozen's hey. not here, man. No, just let me take off my makeup. I'll be with you. No, Frozo's got to put on some big shoes and hang around the tent with the other clowns. You just get into one big car. You think it's just, physically impossible? Watch us fucking do it, man. You just, just want to get him go. Uh, take a hit on this. It's smooth. <laughs> One day, everything I'm doing is going to really blow fucking people's minds <laughs> at, at the behest of two people who who quite clearly have never stepped outside of their normal realm of humor. <laughs> but it's okay, because one of them plays a priest in machete and shoots a shotgun. <laughs> Absolutely. Because we, we're, we're talking about Frozo. Let's let's break it down for him. Because he's he's similar to a clown, and you know, but he's not. He's he is so obsessed with his ambitions for fame. Yeah. That it dominates his relationship with Venus in the like most sitcomiest of ways. Um, <laughs> but but as they but as they uh, have their first interaction and it's clear they're flirting with each other, mm. they, she exits the scene by going like, "You're a you're a good bo- you're a grand boy," and she he goes like, "I sure am. You should have seen me before the operation." And it's a very weird line that technically doesn't work because there's an initial line that was cut about um you know maybe what you need is a good night's sleep and venus replying like sometimes a girl needs more than sleep and like that's another way of you know they had to do get rid of that in order to get around the code but that line stays and the only reason that i think it would probably still exist is because um uh the uh it would be connected to todd browning's uh image uh, like fascination with the macabre and surgeries in general because the unknown features a very very prominent surgery that is that lon cheney senior has in order to have his arms removed to impress joan crawford 
Um, so I, I think that it's just an interesting line that kind of just sticks in there. Um, but so anyway, they leave the tent or she, she leaves the, the, uh, his cart and yeah. we get, uh, we get Hercules meeting Olga uh, or meeting Cleopatra for the first time. And they have, uh, they have another sitcom scenario, but it's a, a sitcom uh, consistent of the worst people on planet earth. <laughs> yeah, They are just, they're, they're flirting of, and they're clear innuendo with how many eggs would you like? And, uh, the, the, you're so strong, you're crushing me. And like, I'm just like, ah, just, you're both terrible and not just yeah. for the reasons that are about to come. You're just terrible period. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I suppose it was natural that they'd find each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like those, those hate, it's a love that'll never grow old, you know, like that. <laughs> Shit, neat shit. <laughs> a Taylor's end of time. Taylor's longest time away. Yeah, it's yeah. shitty yeah. and the shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Uh, but be, they be, are. I mean, they're the worst. Yeah, they are the worst. And what's oh. more, it's doubled down on because her Josephine Joseph is looking in on him, which I was mm. wondering is Josephine Joseph into Hercules, and that's why she's looking. But, uh, but, uh, but is, is that why they're looking? And like, no, it doesn't really matter because. There was an initial line about, like, I see you're fixing your nose as Hercules comes up to Josephine Joseph. But instead, the line is just, here's something for your eye. And he mm. punches the man's side of Josephine Joseph, which I don't like the idea of him, uh, of Hercules punching them. Because that doesn't, no. like, that, 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 it's such a weird line to tell, but it does establish that Hercules is an asshole. And uh, yeah, I mean, it does that very well. Yeah, and it's definitely needed to further advance. Like you just, you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're not, you're not gonna sympathize with him in any way, shape, or form. And then his initial undoing by the end of the movie would make all the sense in the world. But yeah. uh, then we get another scene with uh, Frida worrying about. Uh, 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 well, no, we first get France, France, uh, Frida and Hans. Yep. Uh, having a little quarrel, and clearly Hans is distracted by the beauty of Cleopatra. And mm. again, a lot of these scenes between them do establish not just their acting ability, but also the ability they have to play into a domestic situation. And it is very, sure. very fascinating to watch. You know, like just like how Todd Browning is. You know, we gave him shit about not knowing how to work with sound, but like clearly he could shoot a good dialogue scene with a good human drama afoot um, because he has that example about him. Um, <laughs> and then we, we keep moving through these episodic plots mm. and uh, See, this was, a, do you not find this a little bit of a sticking point of the film though, is yeah. that we, we do get these, these, I don't know what you class them as vignettes, so to speak of, yeah, small scenes between external characters, which is fine. I mean, yeah. it's all right, but it doesn't really enhance the plot at all. No, and actually, and it and it proves difficult for what we normally do on this show, which is going through the plot point by point, because then we'd be talking yeah. about things that don't matter. So, like, yeah. I guess the way I can best describe the the following vignettes, we'll 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 talk about them in the broad strokes that they are, which is like eventually the the. The, the love plot between Frozo and Venus is relegated mm. to a lot of domestic quarreling. The, yeah. o- the only, the only um, side plot that is of any consequence and interest is actually Violet and Daisy Hilton's uh, mm. love, love square. Um, because yeah, that's odd. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um because the uh, so the concept of this plot point is that Daisy and Violet Hilton, who were the Siamese twins, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Violet is engaged to um, uh, uh, to a stuttering man, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, eventually Daisy becomes uh, engaged to another man, and they there's this lo- there's this love plot of the Siamese twins, which is clearly designed to play off of Daisy and Violet's appearance. But sure. it is, but it is interesting how it doesn't feel denigrating. Uh, no, it just feels no. normal. I think that the 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 only thing that feels outdated are maybe the maybe the the cracks that are made about it. But I don't think yeah. that they're meant to be ill and ill ill intentioned. I think Browning no. is really working off of humanity there. They uh, they actually played it really well, to be perfectly honest, because they they never okay as you say. There's a couple of uh, off color jokes, maybe a little bit, but. No one ever mentions that they're they're conjoined. They're, it's just you have one girl who's in love with him, and there's one girl who's in love with him, and yeah. so it's sort of. But it but it's actually played nicely, for want yeah. of a better term. Yeah, and so and, yeah, Ro- and Roscoe Ate- uh, Roscoe Addis, who plays um, just Roscoe, mm. um, yeah. he's the stuttering gentleman. He, he he has a disability that doesn't make him. Uh, a traditional sideshow performer, but he had an actual stutter and he overcame it, but he used, he decided to capitalize on it for show business. So he, he did find a way to take something that was a detriment and, uh, use it to his benefit. Um, and, um, and I think that that whole side plot does have some interesting moments of interaction with, and showing that Daisy and Violet were perfectly capable performers. And it's one of the reasons why of, of all the sideshow performers, they are the ones that, actually had a very big mainstream career because uh, mm-hmm. they played vaudeville. They didn't just play the sideshows. They played vaudeville. Um, they had, yeah. you know, dancing acts. Uh, they, they were both accomplished musicians uh, and one played piano, one played saxophone. So there's, there's, there's a, th- there's an interest factor in watching them as performers, not just from their appearance, but also like how they are actually playing into the scene. Yeah, um, very talented people. Exactly. And, yeah, and uh, but then but then like say going back to the sort of the the storyline. So the bearded lady gives birth at one point, and, and obviously there's a joke made. Oh, the baby's got a beard. Congratulations, even though it's a girl, kind of thing. It's yeah. like yeah, and it, and it was like all right, but why is that scene there? Well, I I kind of wonder why too, given the fact of everything else that was cut, because. The bearded lady herself, Jane Barnell, who was credited as uh, Olga Roderick, did not like being in this movie. Um, yeah, and a lot she, of didn't. yeah, and she looked unhappy to be there. Um, yeah, it, she well, actually that, that's the perfect way of putting it. She did. She <laughs> it comes through on the screen. She did not want to be there. Yeah, and apparently, uh, Lila Hames, um, Lila Hames said that Olga c- had a bit of a diva persona around her thinking that she yeah. was like show business royalty or sideshow royalty and well, yeah. and she was a very strong she was a strong she had a she was a woman of very strong convictions and she's not mm-hmm. like she but she performed in sideshows all her life but she clearly did not appreciate freaks and for her this was a way to make money um yeah but she clearly and she it seems like if she had any more footage in the film it just wasn't have been of any use period um, and then also like we get like, mo- like our only other real instance of Peter Robinson, the human skeleton, who apparently was a very, uh, passionate man when it came to politics. Um, mm. but the, the information I have, we're not specific on what his views were. So, okay. um, at any rate, um, and then the other vignettes we get, mm. um, we see Frances O'Connor, the armless girl, uh, drinking, uh, suds with her feet. 
Yeah. Um, we see Prince Randian rolling oh. a cigarette now, or no, not rolling, smoking a cigarette by, you know, using his Gosh. mouth to uh, light the match, light the cigarette, and then have the it's cigarette. It's incredible. It is incredible. And Prince Randian oh. was a figure that uh, was able to perform a lot of his own daily functions mm. in that. He was known as the uh, the snake man, the human torso, or the human caterpillar. Um, yep. And uh, he... Uh, was a popular Coney Island carnival attraction for oh, years really? uh, and uh, along with the circuses. And he actually, he had a family, huh. uh, his son who was, no, who, who had normal appendage took care of him uh, on the road. Uh, and he ended up dying a few years after freaks after a performance. Uh, so he, huh. he was able to make the best out of his circumstance. And, but there's originally footage apparently of him rolling the cigarette, which doesn't exist anymore. It's amongst the other things that were cut. It feels like a lot right. of the stuff that's cut in Freaks is either for time or for content. And it right. almost seems like the studio was looking at that scene and going like, well, this is more of a time thing. I would have to imagine that's more of a time thing and not necessarily something that is freaking people out. Oh. Uh, yeah, which I, that was I would have loved either. to have seen that. <laughs> yeah, I would have loved to too. Um, and we get also another instance of Johnny Eck, the half boy. Uh, Johnny Eck is actually an interesting character within all this because he's one at one. He's one of the few people who had uh, a good time on set and enjoyed the film. And, yeah, I was and reading be- about that. He was actually really proud to be in it as well. Yeah, he was very proud to yeah. be in it. And he he ended up continuing to be an attraction. And he actually was uh, – this is an interesting part of his experience in Hollywood – is that after Freaks, um, special effects of the era uh, were all practical. Not very few things were truly in, like uh, with the exception of optical effects. Sure. And uh, in the Tarzan movies, they have the Goonie Bird, uh, which is the bird that clearly looks like it could never have existed ever. Yeah. Uh, and Johnny Eck put on this bird costume because of his half uh, because of his half torso appearance. His hands would go into the feet of this Goonie Bird, and he'd have the head up there, and he would walk around as the Goonie Bird. And so he is a living special effect um, for that film. Um, And he also performed for Ripley's Believe It or Not Auditorium at the 33 Chicago World's Fair, and where he was billed as the most remarkable uh, man alive. He had a great sawing a man in half illusion. Which involved, uh, well, yeah, that be- makes sense. <laughs> because he had a twin brother who had full appendage yeah. and full legs, and the concept of the of the bit was they would do they would saw a woman in half. Mm. They'd see it, and somebody would say, "Oh, it's fake." It would be Johnny X brother. No. Johnny X brother would go on the stage, and they perform the switch inside, and have uh, a, a little person in a lower half costume, uh, and then they would have Johnny X come out and perform. And so sure. that was their ultimate illusion in vaudeville. Um, and he ended up like living uh, in, in an unfortunate like circumstance where there was inner city crime kind of around his area. And he had apparently told Forrest Ackerman in a later interview, like when, uh, uh, when uh, if I want to rewatch the movie freaks now, all I have to do is look outside. So clearly, unfortunately oh. he, uh, he he did not live in the greatest of circumstances by the time he passed, but um, he still um, he still managed to have a career throughout um, throughout the rest of his life. Then yeah. the other uh, side scene we get that actually does pertain to the plot 
is uh, Angelo and the other uh, armless woman. Um, uh, the uh, Martha Mo- would be Martha Morris, who is Angelo's wife, having yeah. a conversation about like Cleo's not one of us. And Angelo Rosito is an interesting case with this film because it seems like he did not have a good time uh, being involved in the movie, and yet he right. is one of the most prominent performers of the film and provides yeah. a lot of the core of this movie. Um, and he is an actor who who extends beyond freaks, uh, mm-hmm. similar to Harry Earls. Like, he and Harry Earls have very big reputations outside of freaks. Um, both of the, uh, at least like Harry Earls and the entire doll family for that matter are in the wizard of Oz and Harry Earls is one of the members of the lollipop guild. Um, gotcha. And, uh, Angela Rosito in particular, um, he, he had found himself a lot in a bunch of horror films. Um, a lot of his later roles end up being brain of blood and Dracula versus Frankenstein. Uh, and, uh, he, he worked a lot on Poverty Row with Bella Lugosi. Um, oh, okay. And so, and his last big performance in a movie uh, as the master in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Oh, wow. Yeah. What? And his fine, and his actually his finalist film was From a Whisper to a Scream uh, as Tinker, uh, which that, from I from a whisper to a screen, yeah, it's a, uh, that's a fun movie. I enjoy <laughs> it. Uh, it's a. Uh, Good tile. Yeah, it's uh, it's not the best Vincent Price thing in the world, but I will oh, never, I will never, <laughs> I will never discourage anybody watching a Clue Gulliger movie. So, <laughs> wow, okay, Clue, Clue Gulliger needs to be seen any chance you can. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I'll he, tell you a word for it. Um, and then, and then the other asides that we get are really Frida uh, and Hans related, including the one big scene that you already alluded to where. Mm. Frida basically says, like, I don't mean to, like, pry into your affairs. I just want you to be happy. And Hans is very much, I think he looks, sounds like he's more or less conflicted about how he's going to, uh, like, who he wants to choose. Yeah. Um, And this is where the plot actually kicks in because the plot ends Mm -hmm. up becoming old um, uh, Hercules and Cleopatra are seeing all the jewels that Hans has adorned her with. And yeah. they come under the uh, under the assumption initially that like he must have just he must just have stashed a lot of money away, and then Frida comes in to to talk with Cleopatra and they have this interaction that is uh, wonderfully dynamic and you can tell that Olga Baklanova is really good at like b- creating a believability, even though I yeah. don't think she gives this this amazing performance. I like how she is committed to. This is my scene partner. She's not yeah. looking at it the way the audience might be looking at it at the time. She's looking yeah. at it as this is an actor. I'm treating this as yeah. an actor scene. Um, yeah. And through that scene, it's revealed that Hans is fucking rich. <laughs> yeah, he is minted. But, but I, I, I've got to agree with you there is that she does play, as you say, she's not the, the greatest actress ever, but she she does play this scene, uh, sorry, those scenes with, with Hans really, really well. Yeah, she actually and, has even like sexual like uh, innuendo, and when that scene where they're drinking champagne. Yeah, right? um, which I, I I can imagine some people may find uncomfortable, but I I think it actually works for the character. It does show how devious she is because obviously you don't believe her. Yeah, because you know you know she's faking. That'd be but, great if somebody didn't it. believe her. <laughs> well, yeah, true. Like somebody was just like, I thought she was a good guy this whole time. <laughs> 
Well, no. I mean, here, look, if she was, she pulled off the greatest performance ever, because, no, but, but no, but she, but she does it really well, and she actually does it with a little bit of heart, but then you also just remember, oh, no, she's horrible. Yeah, she, so she's actually, she's playing that same duplicity, we mm. talked about this, uh, this kind of acting when it came to Double Indemnity, because Barbara Stanwyck's oh, having okay. to play a bunch of layers, and it's yes, similar, yeah. it's similar in the respect that, like, she is playing yeah. into the believability for the benefit of the person she's conning, while mm. also fully aware that the audience will see right through it. So it's a layered yeah. performance. The, yeah. the reason why Olga doesn't pull it off the way Barbara Stanwyck does is I think that the one, the story is different and it's asking yeah. different things, but two, McClanova is not, I don't feel like she's well, entirely comfortable with uh, speaking English, um, which, no, well, and also let's, let's be fair. She's not Barbara Stanwyck. <laughs> No, nobody's Barbara Stanwyck, <laughs> no. especially not Robert Taylor, who didn't deserve her. <laughs> no, God, she needed no. She, no, Smokey. Barbara needed somebody like me. Anyway, oh really? Oh yeah, yeah. I'll be that. I'll be that fucking bold. Why not? <laughs> She's dead. Yeah, <laughs> hey, look, the, the world loves a trier. You know, yeah, exactly. Going, give yourself some credit. Yeah. Yep, never give up. <laughs> One day I'll find time travel. But <laughs> anyway, though. That's when the scheme comes up. Like, okay, mm. I'm gonna marry the, I'm gonna marry Hans, and then kill him pretty quick and get his inheritance. Uh, and this is where we get the famous scene of the movie. This is the scene everybody knows. I, I argue more famous than the ending of the movie yeah, uh, is the nice. wedding feast, yeah. and and the the wedding feast is the. This is an interesting production fact that I didn't know until today. Uh, when going through some the commentary is that if I, and if I had known this, I didn't pay attention to this, but so we talked about how Todd Browning is not comfortable with style with, with sound films. They throw him. It doesn't seem that way. Yeah. Yeah. So because this is interesting, this scene was shot silent. There was no onset sound for it. So there, and what now, now, I'd have to take a guess and say that certain shots of it were shot with sound, but the predominant, you know, atmosphere of all the sideshow performers having yeah. a good time and hooping and hollering it up. He shot that silent so that he could, and he has more control over his actors. So he can give the direction of energy to the actors. Huh. So it makes sense because this is the liveliest and most close to Browning's aesthetic from the past that we get in one of his movies that isn't, you know, what we see in Dracula. Um, and Do you know, I'm, I'm going to have to go back and rewatch that scene. Now I know that. Yeah. I, I want to see how noticeable it is. Yeah. Well, it, it even comes to the point where you see that title card that says The Wedding Feast, which is like the only time a yeah. title card is used. That's um, true. Yeah. So clearly he is using that to his advantage because... The scene, the way it plays out, you don't necessarily need synchronized sound because the camera's going to no. be moving with the performers because what we get is, first of all, the devolution of the relationship that uh, Hans and Cleopatra have. She's yeah. getting drunk and just basically revealing everything off the table to the point of even kissing Hercules in front of him. Did you think that happened too quick? Uh, the, the, the way sorry i'll just say but yeah. the way that cleopatra she just she switches so fast between this doting sort of loving wife sort of um to this uber horrible person 
I, I thought, I mean, I know it's a short runtime and I know stuff was cut, but it just, for me, it was just too fast. I think the only, the only reason that I can justify it is that she's getting drunk uh, uh, and yes. she may have never been this drunk in front of Hans, but you're right. Mm. It is a mm. sudden switch. Um, I really, think, and poor Hans, you've got to feel for him in this Oh, bit. you not only feel for Hans, you feel for Freda. Like there are shots of her just oh. looking heartbroken. She feels, I mean, she is devastated. She is devastated to the point where yeah. she leaves, and this is before we get the loving cup. Now, the loving yeah. cup, I think that this is where we get the most pronounced example of how the audience is going to view the film going forward because yep. the, the idea of the loving cup, it's a huge cup. Everyone drinks from it, yep. um, which means your lips are touching things that other people's lips have touched, which in a COVID yep. world seems like a nightmare. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's not advisable in this day. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Here though, it's it's horrible for other terrible reasons uh, oh. because of be, because of people's perception at the time, and so you have everybody drinking from the cup. Angelo is the leader of this, and in, in the in the midst of all this frenzy, we get the classic chant that everybody knows: "Google gobble, yeah. Google gobble." We accept her. We accept her. One of yeah. us. One of us. One of us. And actually. We were talking about how Olga uh, uh, Olga Roderick did not want to be in this movie. Her mm-hmm. one shot where she says, we accept her, one of us, is the yeah. most laconic, bored, don't give a shit. <laughs> Look ever she really, like, She one, really didn't give a fuck at this moment. One she, of she, us. It was, it was, wasn't it? It was so monosyllabic. <laughs> it was sort of like, hang on, are you sure you want to deliver that line that way? But she did. And it's like, kept it in. It, the only equivalent that I have is the way Tommy Lee Jones treats <laughs> movies he doesn't care about. Yeah, I guess I'll do Man in Black 3. Who the fuck cares? I'm only yeah. in it for like, what, 15 minutes and then Josh Brolin takes over? That's cool. Yeah. Probably for the best. Cool. <laughs> I had two dreams one night. One I can't remember, and the other one was me in a free in a sideshow tent, drinking from a loving cup. And every day I knew that when I drank from that loving cup, I'd be doomed. And then yeah. you just hear a salt shaker by Kurt Barwell as he's doing <laughs> the only piece of music in Freaks, <laughs> directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen Browning. Oh no, <laughs> no Let's country. Leave that there, no, no country for old circuses. <laughs> <laughs> no salt shaker for old men. <laughs> <laughs> one of us. One of us. <laughs> that would work. That would work. <laughs> this is what happens no. when I go on a Coen Brothers kick. I've got no country for old men lined up to watch tonight to kick back. And I was like, this is what happens when I go on a Coen Brothers kick. Everything goes back to them now. <laughs> and, there is a, and there is a comparison for later on. But anyway, they're drinking from mm. the loving cup. And it goes up to uh, to uh, Cleopatra, and she yeah. gets up, and she just fucking blasts out with the line, you dirty, slimy freaks. Yeah. She throws the cup of swill in uh, on Angelo. And that does not look nice. It, and it, it's, it's, it's that degrading imagery that... Uh, folks might look upon in a negative light, but given what the last 20 minutes of the movie is going to end up being, you'll understand that like it leads to that moment. Um, It's a very depressing image because it is watching people who were at their most jovial now reduced to their worst sadness. Um, And it's very effective. And so one of the most horrific things in this movie, which we're talking about a movie that isn't, 
is its status as a horror movie is questionable because it doesn't fully operate in those terms because the first half no. of the film that we've just been discussing is mostly a, like a soap opera. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, well, yeah, it is, isn't it? I mean, that's a, that's a perfect way to describe it because you've got so many characters, so many different storylines, again, which ultimately don't go anywhere and are, are again, superfluous. But, but it, but I mean, isn't that what a soap opera is? You you see these little snippets of people's lives and and the the bullshit and the shenanigans that go around with it, yeah. but ultimately don't really mean anything. Yeah. Until, but, uh, as you say, you get to the main meat of the plot, which is literally what we're coming to. Yeah, and I and frankly, I'd rather watch a soap opera in a sideshow or a circus period than watch half the soap operas that t- still exist. Like, yeah. you know, I don't need to know about what happens with people in the in the hills of Malibu. I need to know about what happens in the circus. It's why Carnival was a great show that shouldn't have been canceled, Smokey. Um, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> um, no. Yeah, look, I, I, I remember watching Carnival when it came out. I mean, it's a while ago now, but I remember really enjoying it as well. Yeah, and, and so they all leave leaving Hans and Cleo and Hercules. (laughs) Yeah. They leave, they leave though. And then it leaves this awkward scene. I think you probably cringed as much as I did and and were terrified is when she puts Hans on her back, um, like a piggyback ride. And, uh, it is uncomfortable. It is exhaustive. Uh, and it is taxing on your, um, it, it, it taxes you emotionally. The, yeah. the story spurs that it's based on, mm-hmm. that imagery plays more prominently in the short story because that scene happens. And then oh. in the short story, as it ends, uh, Cleopatra or the, the Cleopatra woman in the story mm-hmm. uh, comes to the, the Hercules equivalent years later and finds out that her husband, the 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 little person, is making her carry out his pro- her promise to piggyback ride him from one end of France to the other, and the oh. ending of the story ends up being that uh, ha- the Hans car- the Hans equivalent rides in on a hellhound and stabs the Hercules equivalent with a sword and kills him. And then she Whoa. resumes giving him his piggyback ride all the way to fr- the other end of France. It's Jesus. very bizarre imagery. Like I said, I don't think you could ever do this, this adaptation directly <laughs> without running into 500 problems up the wazoo. Not the least of which being what we've just discussed for the last yeah. like hour or so. Sure. Um, but anyway, it's, it's revealed that Hans had already like ingested some of the poison, and yeah. it's found out through the fact that, you know, Hercules and uh, Cleo are trying to calm him down and go like, don't be silly. There's nothing between us, et cetera, et cetera. And then he collapses to the ground. Yep. He recovers and Venus is brought in on the fact that there's something going on. And what's more, Angelo has peeped in the window to see Hans passing out and Hercules and Cleo talking. So... One of the things is that Venus, being the emotional center of this film, is basically she knows too much and she lets on to Hercules. I know what the fuck you're doing mm-hmm. um, without knowing probably specifics. And so amongst the other uh, things that they have to address is, well, we may have to get rid of Venus. And we also see that uh, Hans has uh, has uh, has started cluing into this because she's giving him the medicine 
she puts a little poison in the medicine and gives it to him. He drinks it, except he doesn't because he spits it out. So it's yep. like the opposite of Crimson Peak, where he's not drinking the Whoa. poison slowly but surely. Yeah. Um, and um, or it's not like Phantom Thread, where Daniel Day Lewis is eating all the bad food and then going, "Kiss me, darling, before I'm sick." Uh, <laughs> love that movie. And uh, <laughs> the uh, the 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 climax all builds up to. Uh, Hans not only knows, but he talks to Angela and says it'll happen tonight. There's a plan for revenge already set, and the carnival is traveling away, and mm. it's in the rain, it's in the mud. We're in for some. We're in for our horror film. This is the horror oh, film yeah. we're getting. Oh, definitely. But I and, mean, this was brilliant, though. I mean, the, the whole setup with mm. the sort of wagon train aspect of this was wonderful. I mean, this, this was brilliant because not only do you have this peril that, that not only Hans is facing, but now also Cleopatra is facing as well. Yeah. But you've also got that it's fucking moving. And it's just like, oh, this is this is brilliant. Yeah. You know, it, it's, yeah. Th- this also, th- again, is another instance of like, I don't think Todd Browning was as bad with sound movies as his reputation precedes him. I think it's that he had difficulty with the synchronization of sound with movement, which wouldn't have been his fault because the technology was still pretty limited at this point. Now it did, it did get off of the tripod. Is it so to work? So to speak. Sure. Yeah. But you have indelible sound effects of the, of the wagon train of this wagon train esque thing of the carnival trains moving. Yeah. And you have the movement in the the uh, wagons themselves, yep. and you see that image of you know Cleopatra surrounded by the other sideshow performers. And it's great, we're we're I mean, then now they she's telling them to all leave the 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 wagon and go, and they could see him tomorrow. Yeah. And then we see Hans get up as she's about to give him more poison medicine, and brilliant. She she he just goes, I know what you've done. And then yeah. we get this reaction shot of did, her. Did you like the, the the how to look menacing 101? Let me polish my knife. Let me polish my gun. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, so we'll we'll talk about two of those. So the side, sh- the the little person who holds the knife. Yep. I can't get a confirmation on who actually plays this role because oh, okay. it currently says Jerry Austin, but I've seen two different photos of Jerry Austin that look different where I'm like, I don't know if they oh. actually know. But this oh, okay. this little person holding the knife, pulling out his switchblade and sh- mm-hmm. sharpening it, I think that's the imagery that suggests the horror film initially to an audience yeah. of that era. But mm-hmm. it's an indelible image, and he takes it seriously. Johnny mm-hmm. Eck pulling out the gun mm-hmm. makes 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 the least sense to me out of this because everybody else has knives, but Johnny has a gun. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't use it. Yeah. It's like John. I, I, it's, it, now I have a rule when it comes to horror films. If you use a gun in a horror movie, you've crossed a line with me. Terrifier, okay. terrifier put that to the limit because terrifier, he uses uh, a gun and I find yeah. I, I like terrifier. I think it's a very um, uh, explosive film. Um, it's yeah. not, it's not my favorite, you know, slasher movie to come out within the last couple of years, but I think it holds its own when, sure. when art, the clown pulls out a gun, I'm like, Oh, you just, t- you, you crossed a boundary that I don't know if I can repair. Uh, Johnny, Eck, Johnny, Eck, I think gets away with it because maybe that's all he had. Maybe he didn't have a knife. Like, I don't know. Um, but I also want to know what was Johnny, what was Johnny, the half boy doing with that gun? Was he pulling jobs on the side? Like that be, I don't know. Fucking I mean, dope. It, it, took, 
<laughs> really would. I mean, he'd be the least you'd expect, wouldn't he? Yeah. So, uh, no, nobody yeah. would expect that depression era bank robber to get away with it. They would just be like, no, no you've earned this money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, I mean, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this. Uh, what was this film? 33? So, uh, but he's pulling out a German gun. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you know, that probably not a very popular thing to do. Oh, uh, it's thirty-two, thirty-three. So Johnny's got a German Luger. Oh no! But then again, we did say we're in Europe, aren't we? So yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that Johnny the Half Boy realized that that wouldn't have been a good idea to join that <laughs> that that cult. Because here, he actually, there's something that, something that Skull pointed out. So, um. The Earls are emigres from Germany, and they got out yeah. pretty early on, but more than likely, if they had stayed in Germany, they would have been one among the first sent to the camps, because yeah, yeah be- right. and, which is unfortunate. And, and so I'm, mm. I'm imagining Johnny was just like, no, 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 no. I just stole a gun off a Nazi after I broke his fucking neck. <laughs> oh, like- <laughs> oh, that would... Don't, yeah, don't with, fuck with, with my Johnny. arms, because I've got nothing else to do. So. <laughs> You know, it, it, life, life in the sideshow is great, but I need some release. So I go out at night and I break Nazi necks. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I'd watch that movie. Inglorious Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be perfect. Yeah. He's not taking scalps, he's just shooting them. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like, <laughs> bang, done. I'm done. What's next? <laughs> and, but I mean, but this, but this is brilliant. I mean, yeah. the, only, the only problem I had with these with these sort of scenes is they cut a little too fast for my liking. Yeah. Um, they, they interchange between the, the, the thing with Venus and the thing with Cleopatra and Hans and whatnot. And it, and it just cuts a little too quick. Um, I mean, obviously you realize that what is happening to Cleopatra and how much peril she is in, and she knows, she knows that something bad is going to happen. She's not stupid. <laughs> no. Well, no, unfortunately you want your villain to be stupid, but she's not. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and then, and then correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember reading that um, the sideshow performers uh, castrated Hercules. Yes. In, uh, okay. So this original? is yeah. So this is this is the implication now. Apparently, obvious. Obviously, an actual emasculation is not shot because if Todd Browning mm. did that, I'd be like, "What the fuck was that set like? Jesus Christ!" Again, like- no. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Irving Thal or Irving Thalberg comes down to Todd and goes like Todd like I don't know what the fuck you've been smoking but you cannot <laughs> show a man's balls being cut off and Todd going why the fuck not why he's not? in this story right <laughs> I, I I can do this it's fine I'm just a good old Kentucky boy who knows how to shoot a castration you know that's that was, just that what was we my learned. best Kentucky accent by the way I thought it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> It's a general it's southern right. accent. Is that, is, is that general southern? Oh. Gen- yes, general southern. The finest <laughs> of all the generals that isn't... Oddly enough, general, Se- general southern is not problematic. General southern believes in equality. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, oh but yeah, no, the original <laughs> ending did have Hercules being shown singing in a high falsetto voice to implicate Holy the castration. Shit. Um, that that now right. that would have happened in the aftermath in the epilogue, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. but the initial scene that was shot of them going after Hercules will set up what is shown in the oh, film, which yeah. is that yeah. you see under the caravan all the different sideshow performers crawling around with knives. So Schlitzie has a knife, and 
we didn't talk a lot about Schlitzy, but Schlitzy yeah. is one of the more legendary performers in this film because Schlitzy is the inspiration for uh, Zippy, the cartoon character Zippy. Um, but also, um, there's a lot of interviews, uh, the interviews that they have with some of the sideshow performers who are also historians on the documentary mm-hmm. had actually worked with Schlitz- Schlitzy. Now, mm-hmm. Schlitzy is a microcephalic and did suffer from mental from a mental disability. Uh, and the question then comes into play that we should address is that did would they have consented to it had they had a mental faculty to do so? And it's a question I can't solve. It's a question the Smokey can't solve. No. It's it's there. There are reports it's, that it's not sh- our place to do so either. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not our. But we're not. We're not like professors at a university. We no, can't right, make no. that call. But. There are reports that Schlitzy did enjoy show business. Schlitzy actually had a magic act where, amongst other things, Schlitzy would, you know, show an empty bag, bring an audience member on stage, show that the bag was empty, then tap the bag and pull out a pair of underpants to implicate that the uh, uh, the audience member had lost their underpants and giggle at it. Uh, so right. okay. gotcha. Schlitzy yeah. apparently did have a, you know, a, a quirky sense of humor and had, from all reports, enjoyed show business, lived up to the age of 80, um, wow. was in another film called Meet Boston Blackie. Um, so, but now again, when you we're not using, I'm not going to use the term pinhead because it's regressive, yeah, um, to say the least. Um, but the inclusion of microcephalic people in freaks is, I think, the one area where people f- call into question the film the most. I would have to imagine that's the one because I find right. it troubling too. Because I, I, I. I suffer from my own mental disorders um, of different affliction, but like, I don't want to see anybody of a mental disorder uh, being treated terribly on film. Now you don't want to see him being exploited. Yeah, exactly. And then the question comes up, is this exploitive? And I think that this Mm. depends on your interpretation of the film and we'll discuss that near the end. But in regards to, what Browning accomplishes in the film. One thing you can say is, is that Schlitzie is not treated like an animal. Schlitzie is treated yeah. like a human being. Sure. Um, yeah. And the only person who throws any denigrating remarks is, you know, either Cleopatra or Hercules. And thankfully there is no interaction between those two. Um, yeah. In the that film. is very lucky. Yeah. Except Schlitzie carrying that knife because Schlitzie don't <laughs> give a fuck. Schlitzie's going to cut the balls off of a person and all well, the right in the yeah. world to do so. <laughs> Um, but Literally. you al- <laughs> but you also see the imagery though of the in the shadows with the rain and the mud and these mm. sideshow performers crawling underneath. It is terrifying. Like it is a yeah. it is a nightmare fuel. Uh, Very much like so. not and not in the sense of like oh it's terrible that these abnormal looking people are coming after me. It's more just like it's this idea of crawling underneath the caravans with knives mm-hmm. in the rainstorm. Like it's got gothic imagery about it. And um, especially Prince Randian as well. Just oh, yeah. seeing him just seeing him go through the mud with the knife in his mouth and it's just sort of as you say, nightmare fuel because you it's not that you don't need to have seen that, it's something that you never thought you would see. And the performance of it is chilling, but it's also there was also a little bit of me a little bit of me that was just going, Yeah, you go, Prince Randian. Yeah, no, he, actually you 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 fall into line with me because I, I I this is the way I look at the film 
from the first time I saw it into now, going like, yeah, kill those normal people. Like, they are coming. Like, they, 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 the, these prejudiced fucks, like, yes. kick their ass. And, Absolutely. And we get that. So, like, they come upon Hercules. Now, mm. the scene would have extended into showing them backing him into his own uh, caravan trailer and then encompassing him. And then it would right. cut away to... Cleopatra running away in the rain. Now her scene is also cut because we see her turn away as she's as she's holding a tree, and we see Johnny Eck and Angelo and all the other sideshow performers um, hopping over to get it. And it's actually it's also a stark image of Johnny Eck going over the log and the others following around him. That's great. She screams, and the scene cuts. Initially, the scene extends to a tree. Uh, struck by lightning, falling on her and crushing her legs, and then the sideshow performers encompass her, right. and then it okay. cuts away. So it would implicate that the reason that she becomes what she becomes is because her legs are crushed, and the sideshow performers just finish the job. Um, and is. then we go yeah. back to um, to Murray Kennel talking to the on the spectators, and goes, "How she got that way will never be known. Some say a jealous lover." Others, that it was the code of the freaks. Others, the storm. Believe it or not, there she is. And we see the human duck, which is still a terrifying image. Now, the reason why it works as a horror image as opposed to purporting the idea of sideshow performers being the horror figures is that... It's clearly a creation. Yeah. It's a gaffed freak, as it were, mm-hmm. which, yeah. oddly enough, there is a gaffed freak in the movie. Elizabeth Green, the stork woman, was not an actual um, sideshow performer of the lineage that would be considered. She's known as a gaffed freak, um, okay. which basically she was a normal person medically. She just had a peculiarly a peculiar look about her. And so okay. she parlayed that into a career, which... You know, props to her. I mean, I, I don't. I, yeah, I don't. I don't know like what, what, how, how that works in the long run of things. But it's also just like, well, uh-huh. it seems like everybody accepted her. It's not like they. I don't know what the, what the hierarchy in the community is where they look it down upon a gaffed freak or anything. But I mean, I, I don't begrudge her a career. Yeah. I mean, fair play to her. You know, she, she took what could be. Uh, perceived as a weakness and she turned it into a strength you know fair play I'm quite happy with that yeah but um the actual bird girl cuckoo the bird girl who we see on top of the table she actually did have she she had a a form of uh blindness that like like it was a severe vision problem and that combined with her appearance that's she was she was billed as the blind girl from mars which is i mean it's obviously troubling as shit but um uh the uh her the look of her with the glasses and the feather and whatnot, it's yeah. an interesting image. Um, uh, yeah. yeah and, <laughs> it certainly catches the eye. Yeah, but, yeah. The, but the duck creature itself, it's actually also <sighs> wonderful makeup, which since it's not universal, it's not being done by Jack Pierce. So whoever the makeup artist is on this film clearly kicked ass in designing this, even Very for nice. like, it's just small. Fr- it's like, it's like mere seconds of the movie. Yeah, um, but, but the implication, which I love, I mean, obviously because of the way it's shot, you know she's just buried up to her waist in kind of sawdust or whatever it is that's in there, and which is fine. I mean, that's all right. You need to do what you need to do. But the implication, which is even more horrifying, is that she can only quack, if you will, 
and so they've obviously done something to a tongue or a vocal cords and it's just like oh fuck it's just which it, it, it's a real gut punch which when you think about it when, when as you think about it further it becomes more terrifying because when i initially mm. saw freaks i didn't even take into account what they must have had to do to make this oh, work yeah. um and um uh and then now initially this is where the movie would end for most audiences of the era mm-hmm. um but there's an epilogue that we get because the movie is uh, has been restored at this point where an yep. epilogue where Hans has not seen people for many years. Like this is so like yeah. there, there hasn't been a lot of humorous moments to discuss plot wise because we are like dealing with something very episodic and also <laughs> yeah. like we're, we're filled with the vengeful rage of the sideshow performers ourselves. But like, yep. What was he doing in the? Th- How many years has passed? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that, that that was bizarre, and and also for the fact that I I must admit I got a little bit annoyed um, <laughs> because because uh, because Frida forgives him. She got put through so much shit. Yeah, I I agree. I think that I I honestly think like. Uh, it's it's touching. It's a nice touching moment, but it's not earned. It's no, it, it precisely. I mean, as you say, I mean, if if you do count into the fact that um, if he has been on his own for several years, maybe eh, really. Um, but what is he like Batman in The Dark Knight Rises? I retired for he? eight years, and now I'll yeah. come back to the sideshow. <laughs> uh, well, kind of. I mean, it's actually. I mean, you say that, but it is very Dark Knight Rises, and so yeah. he's all like, <laughs> Hans. Hans is Bruce Wayne, yeah. and it's just so you know he's knacking his leg and his oh no. yeah, and and there's um, this and there's this scene of them hugging with each other where I'm just like I, I I guess the 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 uh, consolation in our frustration with that would mm. be that it is not so much a like a get back together moment as more of just a Hans has an emotional release of the frustration he's felt with the guilt oh, because yes. he feels guilt for two things he feels guilt for leaving Frida for. Mm. Cleopatra but the other one is that even in spite of the fact that Cleopatra did what she did he didn't think that the results should have been the sideshow performers turning her into a gaff freak so it's implied that to my mind it was implied that Hans felt remorse over the fact that his plan to do this was done out of uh, impulse and anger and now he feels regret it's not clear. It's not clear because no. the scene is very vague. <laughs> it is. It, it's a very ambiguous end, isn't it? I yeah. mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it could be interpreted in very many different ways, but it, it got to the point, apart from uh, Venus, who we mentioned that, that Frida is the subject of our sympathy and our warmth. Um, yeah. And especially at the end, it's just sort of like, don't, don't know. Don't forgive him. Don't yep. do it. But she, but she's got a big heart, you know, and, and yep. she does do that. And it's sort of like fair play. All right, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll give you that. I think you she. Know, I but, think at this point she's just trying to move past the sadness and find some form so. of happiness. And yeah, you know, Hans and, doesn't deserve it. Nope. He doesn't. Hans has not earned it. If we're if He's we're regard, yes, he is. Regardless of regardless of the amount of sympathy and empathy we possess for Hans, like he is. He is. This is something that is amazing. Is that Harry Earls is given the chance to play a complicated, despicable role, which is it's and not. He does it well, and it's not the same as uh, his role in the Unholy Three, where he is just an absolute monster, um, okay. because he is like you know engaging in these crimes and killing people and whatnot. Mm-hmm. This is like a complicated role for him that he is able to lean into, and 
that's where we get the end of the movie freaks. Um, now, as we said, initially the movie ends was uh, initially ended with, um, the duck creature. Um, and, uh, uh, I actually think from the, from the perspective of it being a horror movie, that ending is better. If we're talking about this movie, that is more or less a showbiz drama, a showbiz melodrama is what I'd call it. Like it's a non-traditional showbiz melodrama, but then yes, (laughs) that, that last scene makes more sense. But regardless, that was the way it was initially ended. They sh- they tore the film to ribbons in post, um, and the the behind the scenes on this film has proven to be the source of many uh, uh, an anecdote. Um, the production of Freaks is just as fascinating, if not even more so, than the movie itself. Not the least of which is that the most famous story comes at this uh, comes with the discussion of F. Scott Fitzgerald, who was working with. MGM at the time as a screenwriter and part of the sideshow performers involved is that only four, only four of them were allowed in the commissary. Uh, The two of them were Daisy and Harry. And then the other two were the Hilton twins. And then every, all the other sideshow performers had to sit out on picnic tables far away from the commissary, which now that is, that is, that is reprehensible behavior from any age, no matter what, at the yeah. time, this was pretty standard, and unfortunately, it alludes it alludes it alludes pretty much equally to the the amount of segregation and racism that abounded the industry as well. Sure. Um, this is presented in the form of just any human looking different. Period. Yeah. But apparently, F. Scott Fitzgerald saw the Hilton twins and saw how one was reading the menu and how the other one was reacting to the reading of the menu and got sick to his stomach and left the commissary. There's no confirmation that this happened. What is yeah. confirmed is, is that in the short story Crazy Sunday that F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, he mentions a circus film with sideshow performers being made at the studio that is mentioned in the short story. So oh, okay. people might have, you know, uh, it's it's similar to the way Groucho Marx would talk about anything in his career. Like, it's exaggeration. Um, yeah. And, um, I mean, and on, honestly, F. Scott Fitzgerald had more things to worry about than that particular site in his life. He had to worry about his <laughs> yeah. wife, had to worry about his own drinking, the fact that his mm. novels made no money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. the, the movie comes out and... It previews initially, it seems, with a lot of those deleted scenes intact, mm-hmm. and it horrified people. It like absolutely yeah. horrified them, um, and so they kept recutting it and recutting it, and it ended up premiering in San Francisco uh, after these recuts. The box office on this film is dismal. It it lost a total of one hundred sixty four thousand dollars at the U S box office. That is a huge blow for a film that cost $310,000 to make and only grossed a total of $341,000. There's a loss in there from marketing alone. It grossed, it grossed a fair amount of money in the States and then internationally. And actually in Europe, it had a better reception, it seems. Mm. Um, but, uh, the, the, there are cities that had huge box office with it, in Cincinnati, Boston, and St. Paul, but it wasn't doing good in the large areas, so like New York, L.A., Chicago, etc. In fact, the movie is pulled from circulation after its New York engagement. Um, the critical reception of this film is like Mixed. negative. Ac- ne- no, negative across the board <laughs> for the most part, except like the occasional 
uh, uh, positive review from from places yeah. you're not going to fully expect it. But sure. uh, at the time of its release, the it was uh, it was seen as the end of the career for Browning. Um, yeah. The reviews, the Har- Harrison reports wrote, any at anyone who considers this entertainment should be placed in the pathological ward in some hospitals. Um, the Kansas City Star's uh, John C. Moffat wrote, "There's no excuse for this picture. It's took it took a weak mind to produce it, and it takes a s- strong stomach to look at it." Um, the Hollywood Reporter called it an outrageous onslaught upon the feelings, the senses, the brains, and the stomachs of an audience. Um, <laughs> Variety uh, wrote that it's sumptuously produced, admirably directed, and no cost was spared. But Metro heads failed to realize that even a different sort of offering the story, uh, a different sort of the offering of the story is important. Here, the story is not sufficiently strong to get and hold the interest, partly because interest cannot be easily be gained for too fantastic a romance, which. I don't think variety is entirely unfair because they are questioning no. the strength of the story. But by the time you get to the end of it, the, with the romance part, I'm like, well, okay, yeah. now you're just being fucking picky. Um, <laughs> and the uh, the review goes on to, goes on to say that it does not thrill and at the same time does not please, since it's impossible for a normal man or woman to sympathize with the aspiring midget, and in only oh. in uh, only in such a case will the story appeal. And I only use the term midget to uh, within the regards that it's said in this review. It's written well, in I mean, this review. It, <laughs> it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that though, because the uh, the uh, the poster that they use on IMDb that that's the one with the tagline of "Can a fully grown woman truly love a midget?" Yep. I mean, yeah. Shit. They they <laughs> they knew exactly how to market this movie for an era of that Yeesh. time. Um, there were positive reviews. The New York Times called it ex- excellent at times and horrible in the strict meaning of the word at others. Uh, and it's a picture not easily forgotten. Uh, the Herald Tribune wrote that it's obviously an unhealthy and generally disagreeable work, but in some strange way, the picture is not only exciting, but occasionally touching. And this is the, th- the big thing. Mm. Luella Parsons AKA terrible the person uh, <laughs> uh, who is partially responsible for uh, sabotaging Orson Welles's career because of her desire to have Citizen Kane shelved and destroyed. Sure. Luella Parsons was not an easy person to please. Mm-hmm. And she uh, recommended this film noting that for pure sensation, for pure sensationalism freaks tops any pictures yet produced in freaks there are monstrosities such as never before have been known if you are normal uh, if you are normal go and see them for yourself if not well use your own judgment now the reason why i don't like her review even though i'm Mm. fine that she's recommending it she's recommending it for the wrong reasons she literally is vague enough to say like look go and watch these abnormal looking people on screen you'll never believe your eyes and it's like yeah. it's almost as if luella parson had no idea that these sideshows had been around for decades stemming all the way back to pt barnum and even before um, yeah. and uh the new yorkers john mosher uh stated that it is a little gem and it stands in a class by itself and probably won't be forgotten in a hurry by those who see it and he found the story to be perfectly plausible <laughs> i was like okay now you're just being too enthusiastic <laughs> yeah <laughs> My uh, word. Yeah. Now there is uh 
there are stories surrounding the um, uh, censorship, but also the, uh, as we talked about, but also uh, the stunts around this movie, or at least uh, people, we, we don't know if these are actually stunts or not, but the reception of this film is so notorious because uh, there's an art director named Meryl Pye who wrote, who recalled that halfway through the preview, a lot of people got up and ran out. They didn't walk out. They ran out. Uh, and then others becoming ill. The biggest story around this is, is that there was a woman who attended a screening and threatened to sue MGM claiming that the film had caused her to suffer a miscarriage, which is the most unbelievable crack of shit I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, they, they said that about the Blair Witch. They said that about Irreversible as yeah, well. This and is... So it's just sort of like, okay, we've heard this before. Now, so. But the difference between uh, the stories you'd heard about Blair Witch or Irreversible or even a Serbian film, if if you, if you uh, want to look at it with some people, is that like, it seems like those are people in the general public claiming it. There is a there's a theory that would suggest that this miscarriage story was actually planted by the studio itself because the studio was not beyond doing this. That, no, that, that's no, the no. kind of sensation. Like th- there was no bounds in Hollywood. They had a black no, no. cat contest for the black cat and didn't realize mm. how terrible an idea that was. As we talked about yeah. in episode one, like that's don't put a bunch of cats in your fucking theater. They're going to fucking lose yeah. their shit. Like, yeah, that's not a good idea. <laughs> nope, no, I mean, but then they, they did something similar with the exorcist as well. Didn't they? When that was, when that was coming out and yeah. it was just like, okay, it's tabloidies. It's, it's just, you're ramping up the interest for people to for people to grasp hold of and and i don't know it's it's just sensationalism and it's just oh god but 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 smoky how are people gonna see my movie if i'm not blowing it out of fucking proportion I've only well, got this, and then after that, my career is tanked. Like, <laughs> well, this is this is true. This is true. Just, but just before we just before we end, it, it's like, um, uh, let, let me just uh, reference what I mentioned at the start, which is uh, the remake. Yes, well, we're going to get into that because there's a couple of yeah. um, I wanted to talk about how this film. Oh, okay. Leads into today because there's more Sorry. examples yeah. of it than you'd realize, um, mm. but. I want to wrap up Browning a little bit because he okay. um, he obviously he is the star of this movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. This the film uh, was uh, you know obviously uh, not just not just censored and uh, edited to shreds, mm. but it initially was pulled from release uh, and regionally the film uh, had the controversy and had screenings pulled in places such as Atlanta in the UK, yeah. aka Smokyland. Uh, they, mm-hmm. uh, the film was banned by British censors and it remained so for over 30 years before being yeah. passed with an X rating in August of 1963. This is yeah. not an X movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's I not. told this, I talked about this with Kev and I've talked about this with Andrew Sanders from pop culture brews. You, <laughs> you guys, I feel so terrible for you guys having to undergo the video nasties, the wrath oh, yeah. of Mary Whitehouse, every, oh. <laughs> every fucking thing. You guys have had it hard because you guys missed out on some great shit for a long ass time. <laughs> we really did, mate. Um, and now, and now, and now, go figure. The Driller Killer is in the is in the public domain. We can watch it anytime we want now. Yeah, so, yeah. and not, well, not only that, we've like we've we've found out like 
that like uh, Kev alluded to the fact that apparently the law was illegal to begin with because there was well, yes. Of- oh yeah, it shouldn't have been in there in the first place. Yeah, but um, but the, the the thing about the video nasties is hilarious. Is is that um, um it was a bit like with your um. Well, you had over there the 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 Christian uh, right group. Or oh, the Catholic Legion of Decency. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. In the fact that you are instead of forward thinking, uh, it was the same with Mary Whitehouse as well. It, it, instead of forward thinking, they're trying to regress us back to a backwards way of thinking. Yeah, which which if you if you do it the exact opposite way of saying okay, th- these things do exist, um, but they need policing properly. And to so they can be viewed, but with a certain amount of discretion. Yeah. Great. Okay, let's do that. But no, it wasn't. It was no. We're just going to try and stop you from viewing them, which is utterly preposterous. Right. Which and, is um, which is similar to how people try to police people talking about golden age Hollywood with context. They're trying like you're trying to take away our movie. It's the opposite. It's like code. no, we're yeah. trying to provide a discretion for you. You know. Yeah. I mean, it, it's pathetic. I mean, I mean, I, I'm a I'm a metal music fan, and uh, you know, uh, over in the US, they were burning Iron Maiden records because they thought they were Satan worshippers, and it was just all like, well, hang on, uh, a you're buying their album to burn it, so you're giving the money anyway. So how about think about that for just one second? Yeah, and and then B, have you listened to the lyrics? I mean, Number of the Beast is a copy of Jabberwocky anyway, so that's yeah. been around for a very very long time. So. Yeah. Let's let's not bother with that. Um, just a little aside there. Another little aside yeah. is that uh, also uh, one of the members of our film club is actually in Driller Killer. So yep, yep, yeah. Haley, Haley, yeah, okay. yeah. Haley. I, which which was a startling revelation to have in the middle of this. <laughs> I mean, Hallie could Hallie could do and say whatever she wants now because she was in the Driller Killer. So yeah, she is awesome. she is, she is royalty, and I'm and if she, she if she if I can ever get her to come on the show, I'm going to address her as so. the star of Driller Killer. <laughs> oh, I hope so, mate. Oh, you have to. You well, you should do an episode on the Driller Killer and get her on. That would break my pre nineteen sixty eight rule, but I'm more than willing to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be worth it, man. There's, really there's, there's occasions where I'm going to have to break that rule for John Houston because John Houston worked into the 80s. But yeah, I've already established if we're doing a full series on somebody, as long as they started in Golden Age Hollywood. You know, like, oh, um, but um, but I will say that with that censorship problem, it's interesting because mm. the, the same amount of people who would ban a movie like Freaks or burn a uh, Iron Maiden album are now the same people yeah. who are trying to claim that we're taking away films from their from mm-hmm. their ability to watch them and it's like no the difference between us and you is that we're trying to clarify it while still while still providing copies of the film for you to enjoy well yeah as a- i mean you've got to remember that, that all these films were being sold under the counter yeah. you know it was like it was like buying drugs i mean it was a little bit before my time but i mean i i've i've read up on it and i've watched various documentaries about it and it's and it's an insane period of british history yeah and and also um i don't know if you you probably know but that sam raimi had to come over here and go to court to get evil dead viewed in this country because it was classed as a video nasty what do you mean they won't show my wonderful movie in the cabin what all right that's Uh, it i'm going to fucking britain bruce get on the plane with me we're going He, he did. He actually went to court. That I is mean, nuts. <laughs> it's it's insane. It's it's so batshit. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's. I I I just like the idea of Sam Raimi in court going, "You're out of order." <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, he's only about five foot tall, isn't he? So yeah. He probably would speak like that as well. So. Yeah. And Bruce Campbell's there just going like, like, I don't know what we're fucking doing here. I'm just an actor. I'm just a pretty face, yeah. a, a, a very talented pretty face. <laughs> a, a very talented pretty face with the most gorgeous chin in the world. Dude, so, yeah, Bruce Campbell. Well. Bruce Campbell, if he ever wants to come on this show, he is more than welcome mm-hmm. to. Because I may not talk about Golden right. Age Hollywood. I'll just be like, talk about Br- Briscoe County Jr. Talk about... Yeah, talk talk about the Hudsucker Proxy, a film where you get slapped a shit out of, and I want to know what that was like on set, <laughs> getting slapped the, the, by Jennifer Jason Leigh. <laughs> the finest autobiography ever is Bruce Campbell. Oh, if Chins could talk, yeah, yeah. Oh God, it's so great. It's, so good. it's one of the so it's one of the many definitive histories of evil of the making of Evil Dead, but it's my favorite mm-hmm. one because it's very much the first person POV. And he oh, doesn't gosh, spare gosh. on the details. No, um, no. I mean, I mean, uh, also the uh, the commentary tracks that he does for the Evil Dead and Evil Dead Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he's on his own, um, I mean, they're great with Rob Tappert and, and Sam Raimi as well. But when he's on his own and he's just allowed to go, yeah, and 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 he instructs you when to drink for your drinking game, and he's just he's just going, oh, this is the bit where I nearly broke my back. Look, watch this. Ow! And it's just, oh God, oh, it's so good. God. Talk about a yeah. talk about a man who thankfully you know re, he's much like Vincent Price where he embraces his uh, typecasting. Um, oh, oh, he he knows his limitations and he yeah. knows where where he starts and where he ends and and he doesn't he doesn't fuck with it. He just he just goes with it and he is who he is and yeah and as you're right actually he is the modern day Vincent Price. Yeah, really you is. know who I, I the first movie I ever saw him in legitimately was the lady killers and he's only in it for a second where he's on the set that jk simmons is on when he's uh, ah. doing the world war one commercial and yeah, yeah. as i got further into my coen brothers sam raimi appreciation learning that bruce campbell's kind of like stuck intermittently in coen brothers yeah. movies i'm just like i just want them to do a movie with him as the star now like that would be the greatest <laughs> thing ever the closest we seen, get is uh, have you seen my name is bruce <laughs> yes i have yeah that's <laughs> That's unfortunately about the closest we're going to get. I think it's a fun movie. Um, it's great fun. It, it's um, it, it's so silly. I also want him to play a horror villain at some point, like a truly despicable horror villain. Like, because I don't feel like we get that that often with him. Like, it would be great no. to see him do that. That's um, true. But after, but after you've seen Boba Hotep, then it's just like, oh, he's just the man. Yeah, he's just the man. He needs to be stuck in that hero role to to fight. <laughs> Bubba Hotep is amazing. Um, I love that. Now, so the uh, Freaks, after its reception Mm. and posthumous uh, pulling, it gained a a renaissance in the 60s, thanks to the counterculture. Uh, Mm. And what's more, um, it was screened uh, at the Venice Film Festival, and the film became an art house uh, darling. Uh, with people finding new attachment to it, along among the other things is a the counterculture, a generation feeling disenfranchised from the ideals of the past, uh, embrace the idea of being a freak, uh, amongst other you know illusions they could draw. This is a time when a lot of films from this era are being uh, resurfaced and reanalyzed, and a lot of it. I mean, the Marx Brothers benefit the most from it, um, but uh, th- this is a. The, there's a res- there, the the popularity uh, became the subject of a retrospective inter- uh, review by John Thomas in 1964 for Film Quarterly, where he deemed it a minor masterpiece. Um, contemporary critic Kim, Kim Newman suggests that 
the warmer reception around it was due to the term freak having been taking on a more positive uh, connotation and something right. to be celebrated rather than revived. So like embracing what makes you different, embracing the power of your difference. Um, right. And uh, uh, and then as the years have gone on, I think that while the appreciation has still stood, uh, especially within the last 10 years, I feel like Freaks has undergone several different evaluations with not everybody coming out of it the, the same. Um, mm -hmm. I think that the big one, big ones following into it are the fact that a lot of people do, can't look at it on its positive attributes and do primarily see the exploitive end of it, which is totally fair. It's, yeah. it's more than reasonable to look at the film in that angle. Um, Andrew Saris, who is the biggest uh, proponent of the auteur theory, he wrote that Freaks is one of the most compassionate films ever made. Uh, and uh, there, this alludes into the idea that we are... The film portrays normal-looking people as the freaks, uh, that they are the they are the true monsters, and that the so-called freaks, who are the sideshow performers, are actually the most human people in the piece. Um, and now this is where we get into the legacy of this film and where it has gone to this day. Mm -hmm. Obviously, amongst other things, it, this was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry of the United States, uh, which deems culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant films. Um, David J. Skull made Browning and this film a centerpiece of his book on Todd Browning, uh, a director who, unfortunately, at the end of this film, his career slides downward because he basically is not given the carte blanche. He lost money on this movie, so now he was kind of relegated to whatever was assigned to him. Um, one of his last films was The Devil Doll, which is a movie Yay! that will surprisingly... Uh, will surprisingly uh, take you aback at how wonderful it is. Like, cause it's a movie yeah. that I know got floated around, but I didn't see it until Adam Roach recommended it. And then you guys talked about it and I was like, I got to watch the movie. Oh, I actually, I watched the movie before you guys talked about it. Cause I was like, I got to watch this before I even hear what they talk about. And sure. indeed it is a movie that is, it, it uh, embraces Todd Browning's themes. It is very consistent with his work. Um, but he would end up retiring off of his massive earnings from film. He stashed away more, most of it, and he would retire quietly in uh, the Beverly Hills. He had several different houses, but he also had a drinking problem, so that uh, definitely did not uh, contribute well to his ultimate life. But, uh, but yeah, he was also a very quiet and uh, secretive man, so he didn't reveal much of his stuff. In fact, the most comprehensive book you're going to get on Todd Browning is going to be the one that David J. Skull wrote. And now, and, and, but the film Freaks has permeated pop culture, not just for the inspiration of, uh, of re rediscovering the film, but also other people trying to imitate it. Now, there is a direct remake of this movie, quote unquote, hmm. called Freak Show from 2007. Um, and, it's a movie by the Asylum, which is primarily known for making cheap <laughs> trash. Trash. Yeah, yeah absolute trash. Yeah. Uh, and the movie, I've only watched it once. And mm, me too. The ending of the film is. Smokey, talk about the ending of Freak Show. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, 
obviously, Freak Show, Freak Show being a more modern film is actually a little bit longer than Freaks. Um, it doesn't really add anything to the story or embellish anything with any great degree of being needed. Um, but the end of the film is when it stops being, if you will, something you mentioned, a horror melodrama. Um, it descends into a torture porn film for the last few minutes. Yeah. Um, and instead of um, Cleopatra being turned into a, a duck woman, uh, they very graphically uh, show you the surgery scene that they perform on uh, on Cleopatra and they um, they remove her legs, they remove her arms, they remove her tongue and uh, turn her into um, a worm woman. Yeah, they and they uh, and they strip her flesh, which is they strip and yeah. they basically put her on display as the human worm basically. Yeah. Um and it was even for a lover of horror it was it, it was uh, for one of a better word it was unnecessary. It yeah, was, it was just it was just wrong. Actually, there's a better word. It was wrong. Yeah, and the movie purports that it's banned in 43 countries, which I honestly Complete think is bullshit. Yeah, that's that's fucking nonsense. Like that it's is a lie. That is that is asylum going like, well, the first one was banned, so our film should be banned technically. I'm the director of the asylum, um, but there's other inspirations that Freaks has taken upon mm. um, when it comes to um, uh, the world of cinema. Um, we yeah. talked about. Kevin Smith up at the top. Tusk. Yep. Tusk is a movie that uh, takes direct inspiration from freaks. Absolutely. Not the least of which is the duck creature. That's how you get a human walrus. Now, we more than all know that Kevin's inspiration for Tusk is primarily that's the fake story that he read for Smodcast and then yeah. turned into the movie. Um, which right. is great because it is an inspired story. And But the imagery of Justin Long in the walrus suit oh. is very in line with the lineage of the duck creature from Freaks. Yeah. And uh, arguably also some similar things come into play in Yoga Hosers, but it's a very different movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but, but Tusk is a movie I feel like expands also on themes in Freaks. But in a very different way, like in a very, yeah. very different way. Because also, I, I I know where you're coming from. Yeah. So, I, but I, I mean, the lineage is there. Um, I think that obviously American Horror Story has done Freak Show, which it's more concerned, I think, with being a nightmare alley homage. But yes. it does have its moments of freaks as well. Sure. Um, and then you also, as we discussed, the remake Carnival, I think, takes a lot of inspiration from Freaks, um, and uh, the it even goes into the realm of what we consider high-class cinema. More recently, within the last three years, uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is an anthology uh, Western film that the Coen brothers did for Netflix, the third story in the film is Meal Ticket, and it deals with Liam Neeson and Harry Melling uh, from Harry Potter fame. Uh, uh, they are playing uh, two showmen. Liam Neeson is this promoter who has an act where Harry Melling is a human torso delivering um uh recitations of high class literature and um uh quotes from the bible and political speeches and in the span of about 15 to 20 minutes meal ticket does the realistic brutal version of freaks where 
Uh, have you seen the movie Smokey? I haven't, no. Oh, then I won't spoil it for you. But if anybody knows what uh, has seen Ballad of Buster Scruggs, they'll know what I'm talking about by the time you get to the end of it because the movie is less concerned with the freak show element of it and is much more concerned with... Um, it feels like it's more concerned with the implications of the changing of trends in art. Okay. Um, but yeah. uh, it's a Netflix movie, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So you can get yeah. it. You can oh, get we'll it super it simple. Yeah. And, and you also get a bunch of other stories in there. And the last one is actually a cool ghost story or like a, I, I it's a, like a, a, a grim reaper story at the end. Um, okay. But the, uh, but the film does have, he's labeled and promoted as the wingless thrush because he has no arms or legs. Um, right. And Harry Melling is clearly having to adapt CGI-wise, because as far as I know, he didn't lose his limbs after Harry Potter. Um, and uh, <laughs> I don't know what J.K. Rowling does in her spare time. You know, well, I, we, we've only yeah. we've only seen a sample of her weirdness. Um, yeah, let, let's not go there, right? No, we're not going to. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, regardless, the lo- the legacy of freaks is looming large. Now, the mm. question might be coming about is why can't we remake it? Why can't you remake it? Well, consider the last three hours that we've just discussed this movie and realize yeah. that if you were going, the sideshows still exist, but. The way the the way that current culture works and rightfully so has progressed is that to do a story like Freaks, and I'm not talking about in, in, uh, the inclusivity of actors with disabilities. That's a given. You should do that no matter what, especially if the role calls for it. But to tell the story of Freaks would be to bring up a lot of painful emotional baggage for people who have disabilities, for people who have these uh uh, these what what the time considered abnormalities um, and the bottom line is is that it's a movie that only could be made when it was made because the taste and the permissiveness of the culture was as such that way they weren't going to bat an eye in thinking this is offensive in regards to the feelings of a sideshow performer they look at it as offensive as why would you show me something so horrific the reason why freaks still exist as a positive note for most people is because we've re- there's been a reclamation of it. There's been mm. people have been able to reclaim the narrative on freaks and call it a story for what it is, which is showing an, a more accurate and human portrayal of sideshow performers. Others mm. see it as exploitative, and they are more than right to do so. As far sure. as as far as myself and I'm, and I think Smokey and I are in the same boat is is that I find the film to be empowering, uh, and with the, with keeping in mind that there's baggage involved, and so oh, oh, very much so, and like and you know there's this there's this conflict that I've had when I when it's like well we've got to talk about things like the Searchers and Gone with the Wind on this show at some point and reckon with the the negative things. It can sound like we're doing a podcast that's trying to be a moral arbiter. And it's like, no, because I can go back to Freaks any time of any day and still get a kick out of the movie. There are there's a difference between embracing the subversive and the extreme while understanding what 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 surrounds the film as opposed to watching a two hour movie where John Wayne's a fucking racist. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's two different uh, fucking uh, viewpoints on it. But on that note, Smokey, thank you for sitting down for three hours to talk about a 60-minute movie. <laughs> That's all right. My absolute pleasure. Re- yeah. Really quickly, tell people about what you do. What do you do, and how can people hear more of it? Okay. Uh, yeah, well, as uh, Zach mentioned at the start, I 
two podcasts. Uh, I have Rated H, which is a horror movie podcast uh, with my uh, good friend uh, and confidant and at the moment uh, sensation of the world uh, with his crisp sandwiches, believe it or not. What the fuck? Uh, he was just on Chicago TV this morning. Can you believe it? Or not? It's, it's I'm I'm fucking... I'm fucking blown away because I just saw this on. I'm, I when I saw so I follow Ben. Follow Ben followed yeah. me back and we chat back and forth every so often. But mm. I, I saw them unfolding at first these crisp sandwiches and I'm like, <laughs> okay, that's 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 an interesting quirk. I've eaten ramen noodles with barbecue sauce, so I guess that makes sense. Uh, but then it grew and grew, yeah, and then I started yeah. seeing Tree talk about it. I've seen oh yeah, uh, uh, Nick talk about yeah, it. I'm like, tree. what yeah. in the world? And, and I've, yeah. and you know what I've chosen to do, Smokey? Mm. Apart from listening to the the mini episode you guys did on it, oh yeah, I I have chosen to be like, you know what? This is the best mystery in my life, and I want to keep it a mystery. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I, at time of recording, uh, there there is a, a new rated H forthcoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should be in the next day or so, um, where we talk about uh, the film Incident in the Ghostland. Um, but uh, it is started by a, a nice five minute conversation where we explain everything uh, <laughs> about Ben's foray into the world of becoming a culinary master of, um, uh, which I suppose for your American audience is uh, potato chip uh, yeah. sandwiches. Yeah. Believe it or not. Yeah, I mean, fuck me. Uh, and he was on daytime telly over here. He's been on God knows how many radio stations. And then today, yeah, a, a Chicago morning uh, news show decided to to have him on. So he's gone. He's gone international. He is. Uh, I'll, I'll send you the link if you want, Zach. For I, the, uh, yes. The, with a YouTube clip. I will. I will not only watch that clip. I will put it in the liner notes of this show. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Because so, one, one thing I so did that, want to say is is that like I do yeah. love Rated H and I love you both, yeah. you and Ben on it. Aww. I think the next time we have you on, we should also get Ben on board here to have oh, a absolutely. nice pro- cross pollination of either a horror movie or even anything else you guys want to do. You're more than you are more than welcome back on this show anytime. That's for sure. Uh, Oh, well, thank you very much. I do appreciate that. And I, and I can more than guarantee that he'll be well up for that because his 15 minutes of fable have dried up by then. So, and, so and it's my job to make available. sure it extends out as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So if you if you like your horror movies, we, we do everything from from classics to lesser known things and uh, and all in between. And we just uh, we like talking about our horror and um, yeah, and it's all good fun. And then. Uh, the other show uh, that I do, as uh, Zach mentioned as well, is All the Best Lines that I do with our mutual friend, Adam Roach. Um, All the Best Lines is, is a weird uh, animal in itself in that uh, I'd been planning to make it for a couple of years. Um, it went through, uh, nothing was ever recorded, but it, it went through a couple of different co-hosts. Uh, Adam was not on board initially. And and I've just about given up on the idea for, through one reason or another. You know, it wasn't no one. It was no one's fault. And uh, I was just like, ah, maybe the time isn't right for me to do a, a golden age uh, cinema podcast. And then I just happened to mention it to Adam one day, and bless his little cotton socks, he just went, "Well, do you want me to do it with you?" And it was like, uh, yes, busiest <laughs> man in the world. Do you want to? And he's, you know, and 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 it's taken on a life of its own. And so I thank you all to him. I I tell you the the benefit that has been no Zach. Well, not the benefit, but just a really nice thing that's come out of it is that I I wanted to tell it from a perspective 
of being a nearly 40-year-old man who, you know, watches a lot of modern nasty horror and listens to heavy metal music and drinks and smokes and all of this. And I'm the bad boy of Golden Age cinema. And so, but it's the messages I've got from people who are the same as me going, I never really gave these films a chance. And now because you're giving them a chance, I am too. Mm -hmm. And that makes it all worth it. Yep. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not blowing my trumpet. I know very little about these things, but I'm I'm just enjoying the ride for what it is. And yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, if anyone wants to find us, we're on Twitter at uh, Rated H Pod and at um, Best Lines Pod for all the best lines. And you can find Rated H and all the best lines on every podcatcher that you can think of. And I, I went on a and I, I went on a bit of a was, mad spree. And I was going to say that. though that you're. Your your intention in going into it is the most mm. admirable because you're it's not like me and Adam where so like when Adam did Secret History of Hollywood, the only podcasting yeah. experience that I was having when I first stumbled upon that show was doing Real Nerds where we were talking about more modern fare. Oh. But I would always let out my love of Golden Age sure. Hollywood on that show to the point let where I think it might have been. Yeah. What was that? <laughs> let your geek flag fly. Exactly. To the point where, to the point where I, I always got the impression like, Oh, they're, they're getting tired of me talking about this, but then it just evolved into, I want to, I want to try something different. Shamley was just, it was initially just going to be an article series and it, the podcast was going to be like a here and there thing. And then it completely shifted. But like yeah. Adam and his knowledge is what made me feel comfortable with trying to do my own show now realizing mm. I can't do necessarily what Adam does. Um, I was just like, well, my knowledge comes from talking with fellow people back and forth. So sure. it's going to be a chat show environment. But even yeah. though I have experience with the genre, I appreciate talking with people who don't have it fixed in their minds to watch the classics and admire the classics. Like they, yeah. they go in blind or they're coming into it fresh and new because that means they are willing to still give these films a chance, which the big goal of any show like this is to give these films a chance, you know, whether there's something like Casablanca that everybody knows or something problematic, like the searchers, like you still should watch the searchers, Mm -hmm. but you, you need to know what about it, what it is going in and or freaks, which is a movie that many people my age might not give a chance because of what it pertains and they'd be more than in the right to not want to watch it. But, but an argument in this episode would be like, you may, you may be jumping to a conclusion too quickly and you may need to take a look at it. Um, and also the fact that, you know, you are embracing it and being the bad boy of golden age Hollywood. Like that's a fair moniker because you are looking at it through the, through a, through a lens that not many people are willing to go out there and do because, there's an elitism that can be thrown around with Golden Age Hollywood, and I think it's about time that that elitism went out the door. So. <laughs> I, I think no, I, yeah, look, I I completely agree, and I'm I'm not going to get into it too much. But when when someone like you know, obviously recently Scorsese has come out and he has his opinions, and does he have a, a right to his opinions? Of course he does, but it's also it's it's why why build up Fellini and then knock marvel movies why why do that why not say i can i like me i i can watch a hitchcock movie and then i i can also go and watch what what i have just watched i've just watched incident in a ghost land which which not a great movie but i can watch it and i can appreciate bits of it and it and it was it's like what why do that why why build something up and yet chip away at something else why not do both at the same time yeah the only time the only 
Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say I like Scorsese, but and I and Me I appreciate too. a lot of the views he has to offer. But those Me those too. recent ones have been troubling to me because I'm like, well, many of the films that you regard as art were once considered popcorn nonsense. Precisely, precisely. And also for the fact, right, okay, so I don't turn around and say, right, I love Scorsese, but I found Raging Bull and Taxi Driver a little bit boring. But no, <laughs> do I do that? I don't do that because I I enjoy his output. Yeah. But I can also say, oh, by the way, I'm going to put on Airplane now and really, really fucking enjoy it. <laughs> it's just like, it's, it, uh, I, don't, I don't get it. I yeah. really, so, so, but that was... Not the main reason I slide all the best lines, but it's certainly become quite important to me yeah. in the fact that I can, I mean, in our, one of our last episodes on all the best lines, we were, we were talking about um, the leopard man, but we were also talking at exactly the same time, believe it or not, about Terminator 2. Yeah. And it was just like, and it's like, that is what makes film special. And being a film fan should allow you to do that. And if someone turns around and says, well, you can't do that, then I think I'm doing something right. Yeah. So that's that's why I do it. And that's why I love it. And that's why your show is great as well, because it, it's absolutely wonderful. You and Kev did it absolutely amazingly too. Yeah. I loved the, I loved the haunting episode. It yeah. was wonderful. And I appreciate that. And I, I'm glad that you did enjoy it because it, okay. it's it's been the, uh, that and the summertime episode have been the most heavy responses I've gotten to the show. Um, but also like, Awesome. Folks like our fellow film club fan Stacy really appreciated the Sancho <laughs> the Bailiff episode because we yes. were extending into world cinema too, which I think is just mm. as equally important because I, I I I sell it on the Golden Age Hollywood thing, but the real reality is is that it's about cinema pre nineteen sixty eight period. We're talking sure. about the different forms and fashions it takes, and I think that you know like like you know like what whatever knowledge i have can provide a gateway that's more what it would be like i'm i like it's similar to how i hope that people who listen to my show will listen to all the best lines or out of boy clarence or film sure. guff um or i'm sorry Amic here lies amicus because yeah. I mean, they should still listen to film guff it's fun but um but uh amicus is particular because these are even deeper dives into the world Very much like so, the, yeah. the the benefit that i have with my show is that it's like a, a generalized gateway and uh, the 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 primary focus is trying to be like, look, I know the last four years sucked ass, but don't don't throw these away because of the frustration you're feeling in regards to where we need to go from here. I agree that we need to move Absolutely. forward, but it, sometimes in order to go forward, you have to look backward and see what you like. Yeah, it's uh, it's an, an accountability element of it in that respect. Um, but also, we should clarify before we go. There was a bit of a discrepancy on what will have already been released in all the best lines about mm. a certain Adam Roach. Oh yes, and a, and a certain uh, uh, he, he, there was a certain uh, little uh, uh, spit that you two had in regards to uh, <laughs> his appearance on the show because you That's you right. you lovingly told people, "Well, I'm going to be on uh, Ballyhoo next," and yeah. Adam went, "Well, I was on there," and he and you went, "No, you didn't." And, it was it was along those lines, yeah. Yeah, because I, 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 I mentioned that I was coming on your show, Zach, yeah, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and and when you know, but you know, sort of flippantly, sort of going, but I'm I'm not the only one here who's been on Zach's show. And he went, and, and he went, what do you mean? I was like, well, you were on Ballyhoo as well. And he went, no, I wasn't. <laughs> 
I was like, yeah, you were. Like, no, I wasn't. I was like, yeah, you fucking were. And and it went into a, a couple of minute argument of us yelling at each other. You will hear it on the episode, trust me, you will, because I'm not editing that shit out because it was gold. And um, Nick, and, Nick, I'm right yeah. here. I'm right fucking here. I'm here to yeah, tell right you there. that Zach messed this the fuck up because he started Shamley, didn't realize where the fuck it was going, and then he made an entirely different show. <laughs> However, <laughs> however, we were both kind of right because he said, no, no, I was on Shamley. And yep. I was like, all right, fine. I yep. said, but it's on the same fucking feed. Yeah. So, And then yeah. we found so, out, obviously, that... <laughs> well, here's the problem. Here's, here's one of the problems, and I probably contributed to this, is that I, yeah, did, an, I did announce early on that I was going to put Shamley on the feed. I still haven't done it yet because I'm trying to figure out how to do that to separate it out so that it's like... Uh-huh the uh unknown season or whatever um, it's all your fault, sir. yeah it's all my fucking fault it, it, most most problems can be pla- placed at my doorstep <laughs> 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 the only problem yeah. you can't place at my doorstep is the making of gone with the wind i had nothing to do with that shit no, you had you had zero to do with that no i'll, I did, I'll, give, you, no, I'll didn't. give you that bit of credit at least <laughs> so you know but we'll, no. we'll talk about that episode when I have a full panel of people ready to talk it out. Like we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna have some group therapy with that movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, look, I mean, it doesn't. To be perfectly honest, mate, it doesn't take a lot for me and Adam to fall out anyway. So yeah. you know, it was gonna happen eventually. Oh so yeah, no, right. well, I'm, I'm, Don't worry I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like the Yoko Ono of the, of the. <laughs> the all the best lines world <laughs> broke right. up the group. F- Film Club Sunday, you changed your name to Yoko. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's we're we're doing Treasure of the Sierra Madre this Sunday, and at first oh, yeah, I was gonna are, yeah. I was gonna call myself Walter Houston, but now I'm just gonna call myself no, Yoko. <laughs> <laughs> Yoko to Smokey yeah. and Adams, Paul and John. I buried Smokey. <laughs> yeah, like it. I yeah. like it. But anyway, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about where to find us at the tag on this show. On the next couple of episodes, uh, we are going to be talking about Abbott and Costello, but not their universal work. We're going to dig into their MGM work with a little film called Rio Rita with return guest Matt Willicks. Um, And then following that, we are going to tread away from film for a moment to talk about old time radio. Uh, with an old friend of mine who wants to talk about yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And I am going to acquiesce to that because yours truly, Johnny Dollar, was one of the last regular running narrative programs on CBS at the time of the end of the golden age of radio. So we'll talk a little bit of Johnny Dollar. Some insurance mysteries are abound, so stay tuned. Uh, but until next time, folks, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. <laughs>